VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, October the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this. Come on with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So we've been trying to keep you up to date with the uh, exploits of Gander native Blair Bursey, of course, professional golfer, trying to qualify for the Real big stage, the PGA Tour. He's at the University of New Mexico. Pardon me, University of New Mexico, playing the championship course. Yesterday was round number three, not his day. Three over seventy-four. He now stands tied fifty-second. He needs to be in the top twenty to advance to the second stage. So he needs to go low, as they say. So home opener tonight for the Newfoundland Growlers, hosting the Reading Royals. Puck drop at seven. They've got eleven Marlies in the lineup. Pardon me, eleven guys that were recently caught from the Marlies in the lineup. Only a couple of days to come together. A couple of locals will indeed be skating tonight. Jordan Eskett and Adam Daw. Danny Cadigan has been with the team all week. I'm not sure if he's in the lineup tonight, but he's not playing for Outer Cove, who also opened up their season tonight down at the Jack Byrne. All right. Big weekend for rugby fans. Semi-final weekend is here at the World Cup of Rugby at 4.30 uh, this afternoon. Argentina up against it against the New Zealand All Blacks. So Las Pumas, they've really got to have their best game in their lifetime. And then tomorrow afternoon, same time, England, again, up against it against the defending champions, the South Africa Springboks. Okay, I'll be watching. Team Guzhu, 2-0 at the heart uh, the Hearing Life Tour Challenge. They beat uh, Brendan Botcher from uh, Alberta yesterday. The tournament's in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Beat him 6-5. Scored 2 in the 8th and 2 in the 10th to beat him. So Botcher, Guzhu, they've won the last four Briars. Of course, Guzhu's won three of the last four, 2020, 22, and 23. And Botcher won the other one in 21. So Guzhu still perfect. At the Hearing Life Tour Challenge. All right, just a couple of quick baseball notes. I'm still watching a bit of ball. The series are really qu- quite close, so getting tighter as the days go by, both the National League and the American League. On this date in 1992, the first baseball World Series game played outside the United States. Of course, the Toronto Blue Jays beat the Atlanta Braves 3-2 in Game 3 at the Sky Dome, went on to win the World Series. 1993, again another Jays notes. note. Highest-scoring, longest-lasting World Series game ever. The Toronto Blue Jays score 6 in the 8th to defeat the Philadelphia Phillies 15-14. to The game took 4 hours and 14 minutes. It was played at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. The Jays go on to win that one as well. And, you know, some of the rule changes have made baseball a little bit more appealing for some of the more armchair fans. The games are so much quicker. 4 hours and 14 minutes. Ugh, can't sit through that. Okay. Bit of good news on the healthcare front. So yesterday it was announced that the, pro- the province is entering into a one-year pilot project to support continuous glucose monitoring for type 1 diabetes patients, and this for youth. Okay, so apparently, and I don't have diabetes, nor does anyone in my family, but it's been cost prohibitive. It costs hundreds of dollars a month to have this unit, so this is absolutely going to be a big deal, says Dr. Heather Power, a pediatric endocrinologist. She's at, of course, the Janeway's Children's Health Rehabilitation Center. So... For families who are unable to keep up, you know, the adjusting your diet and testing your sugars repeatedly throughout the course of the day, now the pump is going to be able to, using its sensors, to adjust your insulin to make sure you're on the straight and narrow. 
and to monitor your health. The data will be compiled, and we'll see if it extends beyond this one-year pilot. It's also open to anyone for whom continuous monitoring, monitoring is medically necessary and for those who use an insulin pump with hybrid closed-loop software. Not exactly sure what that means. The budget for $800,000 is going to support about 150 patients. It does not include folks who have type 2 diabetes. Apparently, normally, they don't require this type of ongoing monitoring and the insulin pump, but in that world of uh, glucose monitoring and the drugs used to treat. We had a couple of conversations about Ozempic. It's used to help manage blood sugar levels in people with type 2 diabetes. They're not covered in this program. What's become a so-called off-label use for Ozempic, of course, is for weight loss. Apparently, it's all the rage. The trendy issue is to have a prescription for Ozempic, even though you don't have type 2 diabetes. There is a drug very similar to it called Wagovi, but people are going to the Ozempic. I read a story in Bloomberg this morning, and this is really something else. It's kind of where the world's going. Drug manufacturers are now trying to push for approval for weight loss drugs for children as young as six. Talk about the unfortunate attention to your body image. And we know what that means for so many young people, but just imagine. Let's hope that cooler heads prevail, at the, whether it be the FDA or here at Health Canada. Let's not have the ability for children as young as six to be so worried about their weight that they're willing to take a pharmaceutical product to manage their weight. Boys, oh boys, anyway, you want to take on any of that, we can do it. This morning, this has been in the works for a while, and people out in Gander are waiting with bated breath to see if it's going to come to pass to see their obstetrics unit reopen sometime this fall. In the health accord, it says that Grand Falls-Windsor should be the, uh, the sole permanent obstetrics unit in Central to serve something like 90,000 residents over the course of hundreds of kilometers. Folks in Gander expecting mothers and other families talking about the need to have a clinic, or pardon me, obstetrics, obstetrics unit in their town as well. Gan Gra Grand Falls-Windsor are about 100 kilometers or so away and time is absolutely of the essence, so we'll see. Apparently, they have got uh, the doctors hired. Three out of the four have been hired. One of them's from out of the country. Uh, pardon me, three out of four have been hired for the James Payton Memorial Hospital. Our fourth set to arrive from out of the country in the coming weeks. It'd be nice to have another update on how successful the recruitment plans have been for nurses, doctors, whatever the case may be. On that front, and if you're a mother or a family, uh, or an expecting mother, in particular out in Gander, we welcome your call this morning. And you wonder what attention the government will give to the health accord. Comprehensive work done, a ton of subcommittees, and uh, not necessarily all about the social determinants of health, but yes, also the location of some of the clinics and some of the specialties that are involved in the healthcare delivery system. This one really came down to political pressure. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm sure for families in Gander, it's an excellent thing. So if you want to take that on, we can do it. But on that front, and this is a real curious one because we've been talking about other provinces coming here to poach our employees, healthcare workers. We go to Saskatchewan and the so-called tit-for-tat. But apparently, the healthcare ministers from across the country last week agreed to a five-key strategy plan to address recruiting and retention of healthcare workers. It would be great to know what that looks like and how firmly does it address the passive versus aggressive in-your-face, in-person uh, recruiting efforts that we've seen. So it would be great to get an update as to what that agreement looks like and what it actually means. Secondly, this is not good, but this is entirely predictable. The Canadian Institute for Health Information shows that, based on the data, there was what they're called unintentional harm to patients that rose as a result from staffing challenges during the pandemic. Record number of sick days. Add to it 
The province of public health were really quite attentive to making sure that there were beds available for COVID patients if required. It never really came to pass the way that they thought it may. You know, of course, some of that might seep into the minds of people watching what was going on in northern Italy or what have you, but it never really happened here. So there's a couple of key areas. Even people who were cancer patients and urinary tract infection, infections, pressure sores, because of the staffing shortages and sick days and so-called lockdowns, unintentional harm, which is an interesting way to put it. What do we do with that data? I don't know. How do we assess what's going on with the concept of excess deaths? There's a lot let to be er, let, uh, yet to be learned about exactly what the aftermath was of how provinces handled the healthcare system during the early throes of the pandemic, but no one could be too surprised with that result of unintentional harm. Apparently, at the heights, there were 6,000 surgeries on the backlog list just between St. Clair's and the Health Sciences Center. So that's a whopping big number. Anyway, lot to it. You want to take it on. Add to it. So they started to tear down the eyesore and the death trap that was the Grace, uh, Grace's Nurses' Residence, which many think will eventually be the site for the replacement for St. Clair's. Remember when that announcement came? Kind of came out of nowhere. No question St. Clair's is an older facility. Is it still up to the challenge? Will it play a role in making it easier to attract healthcare professionals, doctors and otherwise, to brand new settings or surroundings? I don't know. I also want to add to that conversation. The province is all in on the public-private partnership. We've seen it time and time again, whether it be for the HMP replacement, which really needs to get going, uh, long-term care homes out in Central. I remember those two 60-bed units, they remained closed for months and months and months on end based on deficiencies that were found in final inspections. So the P3 model may indeed see short-term relief to the provincial coffers, but down the line, 20, 30 years from now, that's when the P3 comes home to roost. So apparently, and I would imagine, that if they follow through with construction of a replacement for St. Clair's, it will absolutely be on that model. And I don't think we've given that a whole lot of attention to P3. It was not that long ago that even uttering private-public partnership drew the ire of many residents, our citizens, and certainly opposition parties, but not so much anymore. Anyway, I'll bring it forward. Let's go. All right, little housing stuff. Okay, so good work done by Rob Antle over at the Sea to look at breaking down exactly where we are on housing numbers and pledges or comments coming from the provincial government. So the minister responsible for children, seniors, and social development, Paul Pike. It really did sound like the government was saying that over the course of the last couple of years, some 750 homes had been built, not housing options including the entire gamut of housing. So the minister yesterday, based on reacting to that story, said, Basically, he misspoke. That's a big misspeak. That's a big matzo ball right there. So if the minister misspoke, and fair enough, I've misspoke on this show many, many times, but this is different. So knowing full well that when he said whatever he said, about 750 units have been constructed, it doesn't pass the smell test for me. Certainly communication director in his department or other senior officials or at the executive branch or at the premier's office would have heard that and said, wait now, that is really not what's going on here. So the 750 turned out to be more like 11. Yes, there's going to be ongoing work to build some of these units that have been funded, but we've got to be, well, not me, they, the government, has to be careful on this front. I know they also talk about this kind of crept up on them. Not so, if you follow the numbers. So in 2020, 
inside government's own numbers, at the year ending, March 31st of their fiscal year, the at-risk of homelessness assisted by supportive services, 2020, 4,300. 2021, 5,008. 2022, 10,615. So this has been growing. So misspeaking, I get it, but didn't acknowledge misspeaking until the story broke. And once again, nice work, Rob Antel. So, come on, government. It didn't just jump out of nowhere. And misspeaking has to be carefully monitored. All we want is accurate information, even if it's not the information we want to hear, even if it's not the answer we want to hear to any questions posed by media or the general public. Accuracy has got to be given a bit more keen attention or focus because certainly someone in his office or he himself or the executive branch or the premier, when they hear those things go, hmm, I'm not so sure we can back up that assertion. So anyway, you want to bring that forward. You know what to do. On that front, we've heard from MNL, the municipality's Newfoundland and Labrador, that many small communities do not have the horsepower or the staff to fill out applications for access to the housing accelerator fund monies. And there's like $4 billion in that pot. Even some of the bigger centers, I hear Mayor Jim Parsons out in Cornerbrook saying they need assistance to do exactly that. So maybe the federal government, with their sort of chastising the city of St. John's for not being ambitious enough with their application for funds, maybe, just maybe, you can make it easier. Maybe at the Department of Municipal Affairs here provincially, when you hear Mayor Jim Parsons or others say, we need some help, that might be a great opportunity for the department to bring forward their substantial resources to ensure that every community that needs a little bit of a leg up to make sure the applications are filled out properly, the data is harvested, might be a great task to take on in-house at the Department of Municipal Affairs. In addition to that, I'm not one to talk about hiring more and more public servants, and now there is a shortage in some particular areas, and I hear Tony Wakeham talking about being efficient and trying to replace positions that are now vacant, but, and we have a spending problem, and people I don't think are wrong, to say that there's a significant number of people working in the public sector. Even if we talk about amalgamating the health authorities and blending the uh, English-speaking school district into the Department of Education, surely there had to be some redundancies identified. I'm not sure for anyone to lose their job, but we're talking about how government spends money. Now, in direct contradiction to that, at the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, there's what, maybe 150 units that are vacant. And the QP local that's representing some 210 people say, you know, let's do a cost-benefit analysis. When we go to the private sector, to private contractors, which are hard to get, how much does it cost to service private contracts versus hire on full-time staff so that we don't find ourselves with 150 shuttered units, so we don't find ourselves with units that are falling quickly into disrepair? Maybe, just maybe, QP's right here. It'd be nice to see all those numbers laid out. Maybe to avoid the circumstance of 150 vacant, and I will add to that, and this is not offered as a judgment, but we've got to ensure that when people don't want to be in emergency shelters, and I completely understand that, we can't lean on emergency shelters any longer, even though we're always going to need them for a variety of reasons. When new tenants are brought into a unit, whether it be a little bit older and needs some updating, some TLC, and or one that's been newly renovated, we've got to ensure that unless you want to find yourself in an emergency shelter, you do everything possible to play your role to keep the unit in reasonable shape, I'll say. What do you think? Let's go. All right. The Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan, has delivered her audit report regarding the spending and operations at Memorial University to the government. It will be fascinating to see what comes out the other end of that. Yes, there's a maintenance deficit at Mon, and yes, there's lots of operational concerns that are still ongoing, 
But when the government holds back some $68 million in operations support, which is directly associated with tuition, we've seen the result, a doubling in tuition. Here's some numbers for your consideration. Memorial University last year was the most heavily subsidized university in the country at 76.2% compared with the national average of 44.8%. When you look at the amount of money flowing from the province to Memorial University compared to, say, Nova Scotia, for every university in Nova Scotia, the total money coming from their government is about very similar to what our government flows to one university. We've got to get it right. And there has to be equitable access and affordability issues. You know, of course, they've got some bursaries or what have you for people from this province to ensure that if they don't have the funds or the support or access to a loan, that they'll be able to afford paid tuition, of course, with housing and meals and everything else that goes with it. How are we doing on the uh, telephone this morning, David? Let's get her going. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a barn burner to wrap up the week. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, line number one. You're on the air. <laughs> Are you there, line number Hello? one? Yes, good morning. You're on the air. Oh, yes. Uh, good morning. I'd like to speak regarding the Governor-General. Uh, people don't realize it. She's living on a, living in a castle, I would call it, in the city of St. John's, part of the colonial building. In the Governor-General, the Lieutenant Governor's residence. Some yeah. of the departments in the Commemoration building. If her, her, prime, her prime minister can can work out the Confederation building. Why can't they work out the Confederation building? The Prime Minister has his own residence, though. Huh? Uh, I'm not sure. What the, What are you saying, sir? Try again. I mean, if the rest of the government departments can work out the Confederation building, why can't she work out the Confederation building? It's not why a government... Why does she need to live in a castle on 22 acres with a large staff. It's pretty prime real estate, no question. I don't know how many people are on staff. But lieutenant governors and the governor general, they're not departments of government. Uh, so technically, that's not who they are or what they do. But that's long been the case, right? And that's pr- absolutely prime real estate and a lovely residence. Uh, that you're absolutely right, that's where they live. But working at a confederation... We, we, we don't need a lieutenant governor. That is my premise. Look, one of my sons was appointed chief of police. And I went down to the castle, I call it, okay. rubbing elbows with the lead in St. John's. The following day, he went down to the Supreme Court and the judge down there swore him in as chief of police. So why do we have to go and rub elbows with the lead in St. John's prior to him being sworn in? Well, I, not for waste of resources. It's ceremonial. Who's your son? My son is retired now. Okay, you don't care to share which chief it was? Which is okay by me. That's up entirely huh? up. You don't care to share which chief of police we're talking about? Oh, my son was Bill James. Okay. Fair enough. I was just curious. So, I mean, people are going to have questions about the role of the monarchy in modern-day Canada, and fair enough. You know, in, in my opinion, England did nothing for Newfoundland. They came over here for one thing, for the fish. Then they sent over the rich merchants to bring back the fish to England. And they declared war on Germany in the First and Second World War. And what did they do? They come over here in Newfoundland looking for our young people to go over and fight the war that they declared. 
Newfoundland never declared war on Germany. Well, we were part of the colonies, though, so yeah, fair enough. Um, but can, but look at look at the tourism potential there. You take the colonial building and Lieutenant Governor's Castle. He got Bannerman Park, and they say he got 22 acres for a she said. Go on down, go, go down Circular Road, go down to Quieta Vida, and out to the gut. I would say beyond tourism, look at the uh, housing. In between that, you got, we got the Newfoundland travel. dogs, mm-hmm. we got the Newfoundland ponies, we, do. we got the icebergs, we got whales, and go up to Southern Shore, we got the spout, and go far around to this bay, you got the bird sanctuaries. Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic tourism potential there. Yeah, I don't know what role the Lieutenant Governor's uh, home and property would play insofar as tourism goes. I mean, I don't even know if the money spent on the Colonial Building is going to see a big surge and people wanted to visit, even though it is beautiful inside. I did have a Lieutenant chance to Lieutenant Governor. Yes. Okay. Uh, anything else on that front? I'm, I'm, for, I'm familiar with that. They have a house there on Bannerman Road. There are, uh, police officers used to live in it to look after the horses. And the big, big three-story house they got on, on Military Road there, the cook lives in that. The staff that they got and, 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 and the cost. But how many houses could you build? If you go down Bannerman Road and go across Circular Road, they're looking for places to build houses. What have you got? You got roads, you got water and sewer. Potential, fantastic. What are they doing it for? For an opportunity for the elite. In, in, in St. John's to rub shoulders on special occasions. Yeah, well, a- anyway, I think a lot of people will be wondering why we need a certain role like the lieutenant governor, but it's not really a provincial decision. This is a, absolutely a national conversation. It would require a lot of work in Ottawa to so-called break ties with the monarchy and the need to have a lieutenant governor and the need to have a governor general. They do play a technical role. Ro- to keep her there. Yes, I know. I, I understand. Yeah. A provincial government. Point made. Understood. Completely, totally, and absolutely unnecessary waste of money. Fair enough. Understand your point. Anyway, I just planted a seed. I'm glad you did. Hopefully someone will pick up and, and grow on it. Yeah. You never know if it grows on fertile ground. But the potential there for tourism and the saving of money is unbelievable. Not only saving money by not having it there, but you can... Look... Ed Roberts was over there. When Ed Roberts was over there, a friend of mine was a chauffeur. He used to drive Ed Roberts over to university in the morning and pick him up lunch hour. Now, Ed is gone. John Crosby died at the same time, and Harry Steele. And Buddy the Puffin, what? the mascot, was just going down to the stadium. There was more nice things said about him, and he's missed more than three of those people combined. Well, uh, that's a... a an opinion I don't know how common or popular it would be but what have you I appreciate the call this morning thank you Mr. James they joke about John Crosby one of the business people was walking up to his business after John died and he heard somebody crying in his alleyway by his building and and he sang out and he said he says Bill what's wrong with you what are you crying for Bill said didn't you hear he said yesterday he said John Crosby died and this businessman said so that's why you're crying is it but he says, yes, that's why I'm crying. He says, well, John, a relative of yours? No, he says, that's why I'm crying. I think a lot of people may indeed miss uh, John Crosby, but so be it. That's uh, 
We'll take it on as people see fit. I'm going to take another call here now, Mr. James. I appreciate the time. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call, Mr. James. But anyway, I don't think personally is necessary. Yes, I know. I've, I've heard that part. And I'm sure you're not alone. I, I grew up in Bannerman, Bannerman Street there. Okay. Now, well, I, I'm in my 80s. So I remember walking up there and looking across there. At that time, they had a small place there, about four foot square. They used to have a policeman there 24 hours a day. Now, in the meantime, in the wintertime, I would have a pair of gloves on that was made from the top part of my father's socks. And food-wise, it was such a crowd. I was allowed one slice of toast bread and a drop of tea in the morning for breakfast. Then I used to walk from there up to St. Pat's. That's where you went to school, St. Pat's. Fair enough. I went to Pies 10th. I uh, appreciate the call, Mr. James. I'm going to get another one on before the break. Okay, then. Take care of yourself. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi, yeah. How's it going? Not too bad, I think. You? No, not too bad. Listen, I'm uh, living in an East End neighborhood, and I don't know exactly how to go about dealing with this little bit of a touchy situation. We got some people when I walk the dog in the morning who are 99% shorter living in their car, a couple. I don't know if, uh, what the right approach is or if I should uh, who to call or who to mention it to. You know, the weather's starting to turn slowly here now, and you never know what's next, you know? So when I go up in the morning, which is usually around 6.30, quarter to 7 when I'm walking the, 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 the pit, uh, you know, there's no lights on the car then, and you kind of go, oh, gosh, what's, you know, you just never know, right? Uh, usually by the time I'm heading back, the car is lit up and somebody's getting in or out. But, uh, you know, and it's like you almost you want to speak to them, but you don't want to overstep your boundary either and see if there's anything you can do to help and not that I could do much I suppose but just uh, wondering if there's any advice you could lend on where this could go or what I could do or a couple of people know about it not a lot so it's, you know I'm no actually I don't know who knows about are they it. posing oh, some sort of problem for you or your neighbors are no they- not at all it's mostly a, a common a concern I suppose okay. you know, with the things that are you know I mean they're you know, there's a there's a city washroom there that I think they, uh, you know, I've seen them come in and go out of or whatever on occasion. And I only go up there like uh, once or twice a day. I don't, you know, it's nothing, nothing, nothing intruding on me at all. More as a, I'm calling it more a concern and where if there's any intervention or, you know, someone is out there to reach out to them or. There are some advocacy groups. Sure. There's groups that do some street outreach. So basically, you're just trying to ensure that they know where they might be able to turn for some help and or, you know, to use your phone to call an emergency shelter hotline. Those types of things you're trying to achieve? Yeah, well, you know, I guess if there's there's anything out there that uh, an outreach place that could help them. Uh, or whether it's a visit to, to see if they got their name on the list. I have no idea. Like I said, it's not one of those things you want to go over and then just bring it up to somebody, you know, while you're living in your car. Not really my business, but I guess more of a courtesy thing to see if there's anything out there that where you basically where you could let someone know that uh, they could be 
in danger or that they could have an opportunity to get their name on a list or something. Well, I think that's how I would do it. If I had that level of concern, as opposed to saying, what are you doing here? For instance, if the question was, is there any help that you need that I might be able to help you get? Whether it be a a name on a list or, you know, be able to call an emergency shelter hotline if they're interested in that and or access to all kinds of services or maybe connection with the gathering place. Like, I don't know because I'm not sure of their own circumstances, but I'd simply ask them, I suppose. Is there any help that I might be able to help you get? And if they say, no, yeah. we're fine, then I guess leave it at that. Because as you first said, yeah. you didn't want to yeah. overstep. So I would simply ask if there's anything you can do to help and then take it from there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I could do that. And is there any, uh, like, uh, there's nothing like anywhere that, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, uh, organizations that say might be, you know, like sometimes you see those uh, soup kitchens or whatever or soup you know, I've, I haven't seen it in a while or heard tell of it in a while. They'll be downtown or something, help passing out stuff, you know, like that, uh, trying to help people out. Yes, there are a couple. Uh, one at the, oh, I can't remember the name of the church. It just jumped right out of my mind. And, of course, meals available at the gathering place once again. Salvation Army yeah. might be a place you can turn. So some of those notable groups, If, uh, but I would start with, do or do you need or do you want some help? And if they rebuff you, yeah. then I guess that's that. And if they say, you know what, we could really use uh, being pointed in the right direction, if you let me yeah. know what they think they need, then I'll try to set you up with the right group. How's that? Sounds good. Uh, I, like I, I haven't. I don't get. I only spoke to them. Well, one of the per- people once when they were walking their dog, and that's the only time I've ever had words. But like I said, just you know, it's different. You know, you don't want to overstep your boundary and think that you're gonna fix somebody or fix something for somebody because you're not always able to, right? No, and some I, people. I, I agree with you. And some people maybe just don't need anybody doing anything for them, or you know, feel like they're putting them on the spot. But just a very friendly. Is there anything you need? Something I might be able to do. And if they say no, then I guess that's the end of the road. If they say we could really use a hot meal, then you let me know what they need, and we'll try to set you up with the I exact the, the proper group. I appreciate that. Okay, let me know. Thanks. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So John Harris, he's the Executive Director, Director of External Affairs at Monsu. He's in the queue. And John sent me a note already this morning, some of the numbers I used about the subsidy flowing from the province, uh, percentage-wise, to Memorial University. We used 77.6, which is what I got from a news story. But for 2019-2020, it was actually 63.8, lower than Quebec. Quebec has a very interesting way that they talk about funding universities. In fact, some of the big stories coming from uh, Quebec is about the tuition associated with francophone students versus others it has become completely out of whack for anglophones from outside of quebec to be able to afford to go to some of the most prestigious universities in the country john harris right after this don't go away saturday morning join us for the irish newfoundland show send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Executive Director of External Affairs with the Memorial University of Newfoundland Students Union. That's John Harris. Good morning, John. You're on the air. How's it going, Patty? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing great. 
so, yeah, I just wanted to talk to you. I heard on the news uh, yesterday uh, the VOCM story on the uh, public funding as percent of total revenue. And I just had a look at the statistics, and I think that the, the citing of 77.6 comes from the college level rather than the university level. So if you're looking at Newfoundland statistics, uh, we are subsidizing 63.8% uh, of the university as a, a percent of total revenue, which is actually the, the second lowest in the country after Quebec. And it's about eight points off from Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta. Uh, so so really, we, uh, you know, it's a bit of a bit of a different picture. And I think that the, the framing of it also needs to be a little different. You know, we subsidize it so that we can send people to university for cheap like it's it's a it's an investment rather than you know something that's ineffective because it is actually very effective it, it had been uh, in sending our young people to university and getting an education there's no doubt that the subsidy has been effective to allow people who otherwise would not be able to afford or could not access uh, post-secondary education because we absolutely obviously have to get it right on that front. It still is, regardless of who, what side of the conversation anybody's on, uh, the subsidy is significant. From where I sit, and I think I've said this to you before and you've disagreed, which is perfectly fine, the way we handled the tuition freeze for so long really played an active role in where we find ourselves today. So even when you incorporate the fact that inside my paying of tuition, I can uh, claim that against my taxes versus all the fees because that's what happened. They jacked up fees because they couldn't or wouldn't jack up the tuition. So we kind of cost students on the uh, tax credit front. And even if it was one, one point, uh, one point two percent whatever per annum, so that we didn't find ourselves arrive at this sticker shock of doubling tuition, I think maybe we just kind of mishandled the entire sacrosanct issue or the sacred cow over 20 years. What do you think, John? I definitely don't uh, disagree with you uh, on that point. I, I, I think that the the way that it was handled for you know keeping tuition at the same rate, but then adding these ancillary fees because of cuts and lack of increase in spending, which you know we all know if you don't increase spending on something uh, to account for inflation, it's a it's a it's a cut every year, even if you didn't physically take out money. So I, I think that I, I do agree. I think it got to the point where we were adding all of these, you know, uh, this campus renewal fee, which I was really happy to see from our meeting and from our protests that we were able to, to get rid of uh, the $10 million that cut, came back to the university from the 2017 cut from the Ball government. Uh, I I, I, and you saw it. You saw it happen over the 20 years that the MUN was facing, you know, cuts and and lack of increases, and it kind of came to a head when they decided to well, let let's let's uh, put the whole bill on students, and it, it it really, you know, the government and the university have always had their issues, and they always, you know, have been not always on the same page about how money should be spent. And I know the AG report is going to come out and it's going to have a lot of, you know, big news stories about how, you know, the university shouldn't have been spending this on that. And a lot of which I'll definitely agree on. But the students had no say in, in what, uh, you know, how the money at the university was spent. The students were not... Uh, you know, pri privy to all these decisions, and they shouldn't be taking the blame, and they shouldn't be having to spend uh, twice as much to get an education. And in, in real terms, we're seeing 20% people less sign up again this year from the tuition, uh, from the, the year that tuition was lower. So another 20% decrease in the uh, 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 enrollment of first-year students. And, and my worry is that, you know, we're going to have 
less people be able to get an education here in this province. And and it's a real, real shame that we have 20% less people sign up when uh, when tuition is doubled uh, again this year. And, and students, it's clear that they're being priced out of, of, of uh, post-secondary education. So I, does that 20% represent the entirety of first-year student body, or is that 20% reduction in Newfoundlanders and Labradorians enrolling as first-year students? Uh, first year, enrollment of first-year students compared to the 2021 uh, year before tuition was increased. Sure, so, but I, my question is, is that 20% reduction in locals or is it 21, uh, 20% reduction in the entirety first-year enrollment, including international students, Nova Scotia, Ontario, what have you? That's, yeah, that's just overall under, undergraduate first-year enrollment. Okay. But I, I, I definitely, I'd definitely be interested in, in, in more of the breakdown as well. But, I mean, if you look at Quebec, and, and we, we're talking about the percent of, of public funding, I like Quebec is very smart in, in spending its money to invest in uh, their young people. And it's a, a very, you know, successful program that has, you know, they're subsidized more than, their universities are subsidized more than ours. And we are, they and they have a lot to show for it. They have a very, you know, a lot of students get education there. They have very high quality. And we have a similar similar amount of investments. So I, I really don't see uh, our, our, our being an outlier here when it's a strategic decision that keeps the tuition low. The tuition freeze, I think, was great for Newfoundland Labrador students. And, and, uh, and I'm definitely disappointed to see the Quebec also increasing their, their tuition for out-of-province students up to 17000 from 8000 which is, which is really you know, heartbreaking for a lot of uh, people outside of, the, outside of Quebec who wanted to you know, go to Miguel or Concordia and may never be able to now. Yeah, you know, Quebec has its own unique uh, set of circumstances, including a very favorable equalization formula, which I think has to be included in how Quebec is able to spend money. I would also add to the tuition concern, because I get it. I mean, I have still one of my boys attending Memorial University. I understand the importance of equitable access to post-secondary education. In addition to the tuition issue, this also has to play a role. The cost of housing, the vacancy rate, the price of food, all of those things, when you add it into the tuition conversation, probably paints a bit more of a well-rounded picture of how and why people may not choose to go to Memorial University. Because I don't imagine people from this province are not choosing post-secondary here, but doing it elsewhere, because we still do have a very attractive comparative tuition rate at Memorial University. So I'd love to see a further breakdown of that 20% number, because that could come in a variety of fronts, right? So, again, you know, just to paint the full picture as to why things the way they are has to include housing, access to housing, price of food, in, uh, uh, coupled with tuition and fees and everything else under the sun. Uh, John, I'll give you the final word before we say goodbye. Well, absolutely, Patty. I couldn't agree with you more on that. It's uh, a very tough time for students. Last month, September, we saw 808 students and their dependents visit the food bank, uh, which is a huge I- I- increase. You know, last year we had a, uh, a, a national news story about our campus food bank where it had to cl- close down because of increase of usage. And we had donations coming in from across the country 
uh, people without even connection to, to, to Newfoundland had donated uh, because it was such a big news story. And, you know, that's a... It, we don't have to be a national embarrassment this way. We can fund our university. We can fund students to be able to afford to go to school. Uh, I, I think it's it's really a budget decision. $68.4 million is not going to make or break the the budget of this province. And we should not be forcing students to pay down a deficit that we did not create. I think that this is a... A real problem for the future of this province, and uh, we'll be we'll be we'll be protesting this uh, this year, Patty. On November eighth, we're taking to the uh, to the Confederation Building uh, to another uh, protest. Uh, we really want to see some results, uh, and uh, I'd love for anybody who's interested to to join us. We're meeting at eleven a.m. on November eighth, but I'll be calling back to remind folks about that. John, did you say Monsa was going to have a protest? <laughs> I know it's hard, hard to believe, hard to believe. But uh, yeah, we're we're heading out on November eighth. But uh, I also want to plug just uh, tomorrow at the Confederation Building at twelve o'clock. There's a another no space for hate protest. Really important as we see the rise of anti trans uh, anti trans hate and uh, uh, anti LGBTQ uh, rhetoric being you know more and more organized across the province and across the country, as well as these bills that you see coming in. Uh, in, in New Brunswick and, and Saskatchewan. Uh, we'd love to love to see people come out for that at 12 tomorrow at the Confederation Building as well. I would add some ethnic and religious-based rhetoric and hyperbole and uh, real standoff, and sometimes it's actually become quite physical in North America, which is also something else. I'm not in the fair mongrel business, but we see examples of. John, appreciate the time. Have a nice weekend. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a good one. You too, man. Bye-bye. John Harris, okay. Executive Director, External Affairs at Monsu. When we come back, the Mayor of Cornerbrook, Jim Parsons. He's next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the Mayor of the town, the city, pardon me, of Cornerbrook. That's Jim Parsons. Good morning, Mayor Parsons. You're on the air. You almost did it, Patty. Almost. I wouldn't be welcome back, even though I was probably never much welcome in Cornerbrook from uh, my <laughs> hockey days. Anyway, good to have you on the show, Mayor Parsons. Appreciate the time. Yeah, no, thank you. So, you know, obviously I'll be much more familiar with the housing issue, the housing crisis around where I live, because I can see it in the new form of the, the uh, mini tent encampment and otherwise. Paint us a picture of homelessness in your city. Yeah, we, we don't have the same uh, obvious uh, problem when it comes to unsheltered homeless here. Uh, we do have some people who do spend uh, a great deal of their time living uh, outside, uh, but it, it isn't always that obvious. It's often in you know behind buildings in the woods and things like that. Uh, we do have more recently, uh, uh, and it's been in the in the media quite a bit, uh, in local hotels where we have you know thirty or more people at a time. Uh, living in hotels. And that's not the answer. You know, that's no. the epitome of Band-Aid, isn't it? it absolutely. And, and, and you know, I, and I, and I spoke with an individual who uh, is in one of the local hotels, and, you know, it's, a, it's about, he tells me it's about half and half, people who, who need other supports, addiction or mental health issues, and about half uh, who are waiting for some kind of government housing. Inside that world of government housing, with the most recent five-point plan to try to repair the 143 units, I think, that are currently vacant, how many of those are in your community? Well, we don't know exactly what's in Cornerbrook proper. We know there's 12 in all of western Newfoundland. And uh, clearly that's not sufficient, especially since 
uh, over the last couple of years, we've lost uh, units here in Cornerbrook, and uh, they have not been replaced with with anything. Uh, so that is, for us, the first priority. Uh, there is, we know from NLHC that there's increased demand. So the, the number of qualified people waiting for housing is up by about a third over last year. Um, so uh, I think we need to get some more movement on you know, purpose-built NLHC housing. Uh, and that doesn't even include the needs for any other types of supportive housing in our uh, community. It's been such a catch-all conversation. And, of course, this is not to promote the construction of emergency shelters, but we're going to need them. Even if we get it right on permanent housing solutions, affordability issues are addressed, there's still going to need to be some emergency shelters because the unforeseen is around the corner. Isn't Was there funding put forward for a 30-bed low-barrier emergency shelter in Cornerbrook? There's an RFP that went out, uh, and uh, it appears that that is looking for uh, is looking for proposals from groups to provide that service. So, 30, I think, to 40 uh, low barrier un- uh, units for for uh, people experiencing homelessness. Uh, but it isn't uh, it isn't about building anything. Uh, so. I'm not sure around here we're, we're brainstorming on what potential solutions there could be for, for such a thing or what organizations would be uh, looking forward to, uh, to managing such a, a facility, but it isn't for building anything. So I think right now it's a bit of a fishing expedition. Okay, let's talk about building then because we know that there's these, the five-point plan and there's probably some good things in the five-point plan, but there are billions of dollars available through the Housing Accelerator Fund. You know, we're told, MNL says... Many small communities don't have the staff and or the time or resources to even accurately fill out the application process. Same thing for Cornerbrook, the city of Cornerbrook. What's involved? What exactly is involved to make this as complicated as, as it seems to be? Well, that's the thing, and I think that the the problem is, and this is, I think might be a fundamental understanding at different government levels, but we don't have any employees devoted to housing or any real social, uh, you know, social issues. Um, it's, it hasn't been in a municipal ballywick for quite some time. Now, we obviously have a desire to make our community the best it can be. So we have, you know, we reach out to our, our providers of different services in our community to try and help where we can, but. I don't have an employee that would be able to follow up and, and, and figure out what the housing need is here specifically with regard to a fund like the Housing Accelerator Fund. So uh, in speaking with my colleagues around the province, that, that's the case. And so, and even St. John's has limited resources when it comes to the city itself being able to figure out a solution around housing. In our province, there is an agency for that, and it's Newfoundland and Labrador Housing. And I think that they need to get more directly involved putting those solutions together. I would suggest the Department of of Municipal Affairs can play a role here as well because they've got significant resources to maybe, just maybe, alleviate some of the pressure on communities like yours. Uh, In the world of data compilation for this application, what exactly are the federal government asking for? Well, you know, this is funding based on the number of, you know, new units, uh, new housing units that you can create. And there's different ways. You might, it might be regarding infrastructure or it might be um, uh, looking at improving your systems. Uh, but, okay, in terms of organically creating this, it's not, it's not going to be to the extent uh, that the federal government probably wants to create units. 
The other thing is, all of us have different needs. So uh, whereas in St. John's, there might be a general need to increase housing by leaps and bounds, here we have more structural problems. So what we're seeing is we need more apartments and things like that. And the market is responding to a certain extent, not in an affordable way, in a market-driven way. Um, but, okay, other parts, some parts of the province, the demographics are such that the population is stagnant or decreasing. So it's, uh, it's, it's really tricky. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, here, we're more concerned with uh, social housing, people who, um, who who can't afford the cost of living right now, and housing that provides wraparound services, supportive housing, whether that's uh, for seniors or whether it's for someone with addiction or, or, or mental health needs. So uh, this is not like a, a – housing is not one thing. No. Um, and, and that's the problem. It's a complex problem, and it's going to require very nuanced, complex solutions. That it is. I, I don't, and I don't want to throw cold water on the provincial housing issue or even right across the country. But when we talk about the private sector involvement and the uh, government and not-for-profits and charities, given the cost of construction, given the amount of time it takes to get all the permits in place and whatnot, the whole concept of the market building affordable housing sounds like a bit of a unicorn to me. You know, I've seen the costs. I've seen the breakdown. If we're talking about building a 1,200-square-foot bungalow at 200 bucks a square foot, how does that come out as affordable at the end of the day? I'm not so sure that that math really works, so we're going to have to try to figure that out as well. You mentioned yeah. the feds and what have you. Is there much in the way of federal land in and around Cornerbrook that can be freed up for the construction of see, these apartment buildings? Because I think apartment buildings are probably going to be smarter than single-family dwellings. Well, we're seeing here just, uh, again, the market is responding to a need for for apartments generally. I'm not talking about affordable housing. I'm just talking about apartments because we do have a a need for seniors. We have newcomers. Uh, It's changing. It's not all single-family dwellings anymore. So uh, we, we, you know, we have a mix right now. Uh, we have some subdivisions going. We have a lot of apartments and a lot of infilled apartments. So apartments that are in more of the downtown area, which is what we want to see as a city. Um, but it is a very much market-driven. So land, I don't think, is, is necessarily the issue. There's a, uh, it, it's more about, okay, who is driving this? Is it the private sector and the market drives most of the development in our cities and towns? Mm-hmm. That's just that's reality. Uh, we can do some things from a planning perspective to try and push things a certain way. The only way to create an influx of affordable housing and social housing is government-run housing. Uh, government-run housing is immune to problems like uh, Airbnb and things like that. Uh, it's targeted for people in low and, and low-middle incomes that that need it, who they can't afford to live without some kind of subsidized housing. And so there's no real substitute here for, except the government intervention. And I think that has to come. And unfortunately for the municipalities, that's not something that we typically done. Um, there's always been arms like the, there was a corner work housing corporation back in the 70s. And that was amalgamated and became Newfoundland Labrador Housing. Uh, some of that as well from St. John's as well went into Newfoundland Labrador Housing. But we have an agency for this. And so the first step here, we need more social units. So we need more than 12 units on the West Coast, significantly more. 
governments changed their tune on what housing meant uh, as far back as the 70s it was once a house where you lived then all of a sudden yeah. a home became you know uh, a contribution to GDP a, an equity position for the owners so we just kind of changed our whole mindset about what housing actually means here federally I read a story the other day to satisfy the population growth forecasts and there's certainly but there's a lot to that it's going to cost about a trillion dollars a trillion dollars by the uh, 2040 to get where we need to be a trillion dollars is i mean it's hard to wrap your mind around a billion let alone a trillion so that's something very last one and this is from a listener in this city here where i live we have a rodent problem, and it only gets further exacerbated when we do construction, home building or otherwise, and there's some great examples of it, very unfortunately nearby where I live. What's the concept of a rodent problem in the city of Cornerbrook? Because it's gross and it kind of makes my hair the back of my neck stand up, and I hate talking about it, but what's the extent of the problem in your city? No, I think it's like everywhere, and it's not just in the, uh, across Newfoundland, it's across North America. Yep. Uh, and it, it, I, I, uh, personally, I think it has a lot to do with climate change, um, uh, but it also has to do with the way we do development. Whenever you clear land, uh, natural land, you ha- you displace these animals. And uh, the other thing is, is that uh, you know how we deal. Uh, yeah, the way we'll, the way we're developing does affect it, but it is the climate as well. We don't have we have mild winters now. We have those kind of problems, uh, and so there. Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, there. There are rats around, and it's uh, it's. Uh, everyone I talk to, it's the same story. So uh, it doesn't seem overwhelming yet, but it's definitely increased in the last few years. Uh, this just popped in my mind. Does the city of Cornerbrook have zoning that allows for modular homes or tiny homes? Yep. We well, we have uh, actually uh, uh, we have a development just uh, just beginning now in part of our city for uh, for mini homes. So not the not the tiny homes, but the uh, the homes that roughly like a thousand square feet or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that, and that's part of our mix. So, like I said, right now uh, we have a, a subdivision that's uh, developing that's in using those. We have a lot of infill uh, in the downtown. So uh, part of some of our schools uh, in, the, in the lower part of, the, of Mount Bernard, one of them is being, you know, re- recreated as a 33-unit uh, apartment building uh, uh, in our downtown core we're seeing the repurposing of buildings for uh, apartments. So the demand has really been for apartments. Uh, now with the construction of the hospital uh, nearing completion, and, and we anticipate that will open uh, next summer, uh, in that area, in that part of our city, uh, we're seeing more single-family homes being developed in subdivisions near that. So it's we're trying to keep the mix alive, but we're definitely seeing a lot of demand for uh, for different types of, of, of lower cost housing, but also, you know, we're seeing a lot of high end apartments. Uh, a lot of seniors are just looking for uh, um, the convenience of not having to maintain a home. It's a lot of work maintaining a home. Yeah, it's not all glory. I can tell you that. I uh, oh. appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Parsons. Thanks a lot. No, thank you. Take good care. Have a nice weekend. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. It's Cornerbrook Mayor Jim Parsons. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Paul Walsh, who's the CEO at the Newfoundland Labrador Autism Society. He's in the queue. So is Troy Croft with Sport NL. They just celebrated their 50th anniversary of the Hall of Fame ceremonies, which took, uh, took place at the rooms this past weekend. Troy and Paul next. Don't go away. 
Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on the top of the board once again. Say good morning to the CEO at the Autism Society. That's Paul Walsh. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Great, thank you. Just wanted to bring up here up to date that this uh, this weekend is our annual Active for Autism walks across the province. Uh, they are mostly on Sunday. Those in Cornerbrook, uh, beginning at nine thirty in the morning at Mar- Mar- ah, Margaret Bowater Park. Let me try that again. Mm-hmm. It's Sunday in Clarenville at Elizabeth Swan Park. In uh, Glovertown, actually, it's Saturday at the Ken Diamond Memorial Park. And uh, also on Sunday, the um, Trinity Conception Parent Autism Family Support Group is having a walk beginning at 2 o'clock at the Danny Cleary Community Center. And here in St. John's, we have a walk uh, beginning at the Elaine Dobbins Center for Autism on Clinch Crescent behind the Janeway. On Sunday, starting at 9.30, uh, the uh, the event involves a walk around the wonderful trails of Long Pond that are here, and our amazing sponsor, Pipers, who's been with us since the beginning of this event, um, nearly 15 years, is having a thank you barbecue, hot dog barbecue afterwards. So uh, we even have a few uh, special guests, some pirates, Lady Elizabeth and Salty Dog, some friendly pirates who are going to be here for pictures and some jugglers. So it... Uh, uh, it's a it's a fun day. It's a great day to bring our community together, and it's about bringing awareness. And also, there's a $25 registration fee. It's about raising some funds for the for the programs and services offered here at the Autism Society. Of which there are many, whether it be employment opportunities, operating the cafe, and the like. Uh, and I always bring this forward when we have a chance to speak, Paul. Whether it be on air and copious numbers of families off-air when we talk about the K-12 system. I know that very often I put them on to you because you're the go-to on this front. How prevalent is it again this school year with children on the spectrum not getting the support they need? And, of course, it comes with many complications for the entirety of the classroom. What are you hearing? Certainly, and at the beginning, at the beginning of the year is always challenges as we get student assistance and teaching assistance and, and, and itinerants in place and whatnot. And we, uh, ASNL certainly received many calls, and we've done a considerable amount of advocacy. Uh, both the, the Newfoundland Labrador English School District and Department of Education have been working with us. We now have uh, we have monthly meetings with the school district to to highlight some of these issues as well as direct contact with the uh, Department of Education. Uh, but you know there are challenges. Inclusive education is a challenging topic and uh, uh, it's uh, it's it's we we do we do a lot of the advocacy work but also we're doing work in the classroom and in the past that's been around talking to students but more and more now and we we encourage any school to do this we want to talk to the staff any staff member all staff members who come to who interact with students about autism understanding and autism uh, autism acceptance and uh, more and more schools are taking us up on that we started as a pilot program with one school last year and it just reinforces the messaging a whole lot and um, you know the theory and the theories and the approaches to um, to inclusive education and autism in particular are changing and um, uh, just being able to to have frank and open discussions about that is, is making a difference but certainly the challenges remain and we know for from from busing to in the classroom to all kinds of things there's certainly many many uh, families that continue to struggle it might be something as fundamental as a quiet room if their sensory overload happens versus all the way to nonverbal students who just need a much different layer of support so it's complex obviously uh, just to try to bolster some of the awareness that it's going to be achieved with the walk uh, 
over the weekend. Like, there's no lab test for autism, nope. right? So it's uh, observing the behavior of the children, listening to the concerns, uh, and the comments coming from parents before there's a formal diagnosis. And you can diagnose it, uh, my understanding is, as young as 18 months. Then there's the gap potentially between the diagnosis and things like speech therapy. Are we getting any further ahead on that front? Because, you know, early intervention, when we talk about just about anything, is key. Where are we? Well, certainly it depends on where you are in the province. Uh, some some areas of the Newfoundland Environmental Health Services have shorter waiting times than others. Uh, the most recent numbers I've heard in the eastern zones range in the one to two year wait time on diagnosis. That's changing regularly. So it, and and that that particular update I received was is a couple months old. So it could have changed by now. Uh, I know they're working towards it. I know that uh, uh, in in speaking with uh, Minister Osborne and his officials, they they're they're well aware of uh, of the challenges around that and the goals that they've set are are, are, uh, are um, aggressive around it. But uh, we continue to work, as we do with all parts of the medical system coming out of COVID, to try and catch up on these wait times. How does it look uh, across the country when we talk about national benchmarks or standards for diagnosis and then access to things like speech therapy once again? I don't have those numbers in front of me, Patty, but I know every province is different because, of course, in Canada, healthcare is a provincial responsibility, yep. and I meet uh, regularly with my uh, counterparts in the other autism societies across Canada. We have something called the uh, the uh, uh, Provincial Territorial Autism Network, and there's a belief, I think, sometimes that everything is better the further west you go. Uh, that's not what I hear. I, I think that there's some jurisdictions that are doing certain things better. I, I'm a big proponent, personally, for the concept of individualized funding versus sort of the top-down type of approach of programming that we have now. Some places have done that. Other places have had it are walking away from it. Alberta, Ontario, I think, or Ontario for sure are walking away from it. So um, it's it's different regardless of where you go, and everybody's experiences are different. I've had people tell me, oh, I went to X province and it was so much better, and I've had other people tell me, well, I went there and it wasn't. So um, it's, it's very particular to the needs of the individual family, but uh, – you know, I think that uh, the services that we have here, you know, as it relates to, to families and children, uh, continue to improve, and we continue to work to get that improvement with government. And, of course, our big push, as you and I have talked about before, is what about adults? What about seniors? You know, autism doesn't go away when you're 21. Uh, you know, we need to continue to build those supports. And, and all of the other things that are going on in the world with affordable housing and appropriate residential options and respite care and all those things all apply to our community and indeed to the broader disability community. You can just simply go to the Autism Society's website to find out about the Active for Autism Walk where yeah. you live. It's simply asnl.ca. Or people can, can can give me a call or send me an email at jpwalsh at asnl.ca and I will get you the information. We look forward to a great turnout on Sunday. It's a rain or shine event, so come ready for the weather. Uh, and um, we look forward to a great morning. Appreciate the time, Paul, as usual. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Paul Walsh, CEO at the Autism Society. All right, at break time, Troy, you stay right there. Troy Croft, of course, the executive director at Sport NL, to talk about the 50th anniversary of Sport NL's Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Troy was a member of the national youth team in 1991. Big home run in the eighth inning to bring home a gold medal for Canada. Also a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame here in Newfoundland and Labrador and the ED, of course, at Sport NL. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the executive director at Sport NL. That's Troy Croft. Morning, Troy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best guy this morning. Thank you. How about you? Good, good. So another great weekend in the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies, this time at the Romans. What do you need to know about 50th anniversary of such a great event? 
Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we had a great event. Uh, again, 50 years of, uh, you know, celebrating uh, individuals, groups, associations who have made significant contributions to really the development and advancement of amateur sport in the province. Uh, we did it at the rooms this year. Uh, we added a little feature, so uh, many people may or may not know, but we're one of the few provinces that ha don't have a fiscal hall of fame uh, in our province. So we came up with the idea a couple of years ago to possibly thinking ahead to possibly do an exhibit at the rooms that would kind of draw some attention to the Hall of Fame, to the accomplishments of individuals uh, and groups that uh, you know have gone through the sports system. So we were able to do that, and we uh, we worked with the rooms, and we launched an exhibit uh, down on the third floor up near the archives, and uh, they did a fantastic job. So that'll be there until the end of November. People can swing by there. It's open to the public and, and check out the, uh, the the exhibit down there until until November. Yeah, we had uh, Kate Walforth from the rooms on the other day to talk about that exhibit and the free student Fridays and what have you. What is included in the exhibit at this moment in time? What, what can people see? Yeah, so uh, a number of athletes, uh, well, Hall of Famers, I guess, not just athletes, but Hall of Famers, um, they've donated some artifacts that they, they've had from their, they've kept over the years from their careers. So what they'll see when they go down there is a um, uh, kind of a little write-up on the individual or the group that's in there. Uh, there could be artifacts, you know, uh, there's, there's stuff being uh, posted on social media, so for the next six weeks, they're going to highlight some of those. So, you know, last, uh, this morning's post, Doug Grant, for example, Doug Grant, you know, play in the NHL. Uh, so his goalie pads, his jersey from when he played for the Red Wings are there. Uh, Mac Rideout, you know, junior baseball team, only national championship for our province. Uh, there's a baseball there, some photos. So everybody has some artifacts from their career and uh, basically a little write-up to explain, you know, the highlights from their career. It's fantastic and richly deserved. You know, that makes 246 members of the Newfoundland Labrador Hall of Fame. It's a crying shame there isn't a permanent home for the Hall of Fame. So one thing that I think we should cons consistently remind people of, you know, you might know athletes that you played with or played against that should be considered for the Hall of Fame, but you can't put them in there unless they get the application process and the nomination follows through. How many nominations on average do you get a year? We currently, I'd say we get maybe, you know, six to ten a year, but we currently have about 47, 50 nominations on our books, which is a low number. Uh, you know, we've had upwards of 75, 100 nominations on our books uh, that we consider each year. So, and that's a great point, Patty, because we can't, you know, people might think that we identify the people who go into the Hall of Fame, but we don't. We, individuals would have to be, or groups would have to be nominated to go in because, you know, to really understand the accomplishments, you know, somebody has to put all that information forward and, and put it together. So we certainly encourage people to uh, go to our website, sportnl.ca. All the application is there, the process on how to submit. Um, you know, many of our sports in the province, they have their own Hall of Fame. So, you know, it might, might be an easy transition to people that go into their Hall of Fames to just submit something to ours, uh, you know, to have on, on file to, for consideration. So so it's a, it's a bit, of, it's an easy, it's, it's not a difficult process. Uh, you know, the people that are close to these people and groups, they would have the best knowledge of what to go in, put in the application for consideration. And you mentioned Dougie Grant. It was 50 years ago this year he made his debut for the Detroit Red Wings. I suppose we should give out the inductees one more time. I did the other day, but here we go again, and it's a good class. Charlie Babstock in the athlete category, of course, hockey and soccer. Eric Eason in the athlete builder category, racquetball. Donnie House, athlete in hockey. Mary Oakley, 
a shadow, absolute gun of an arm. Veteran athlete category, softball, rowing, soccer. Gene Thompson, formerly Gene Lake, in the builder category in soccer. And Shira Wadhawan in the uh, athlete category for badminton. So great class, and uh, congratulations once again to Sport and what you do, and especially in the Hall of Fame event. Yeah, it's always a great event and uh, always great to get together with these uh, with all these people who uh, come each year. So appreciate the, uh, you know, the opportunity to kind of speak to that today. Very quickly before I let you go, Troy, uh, right around the corner is the Canada Summer Games. So they're working on the infrastructure teams. They actually start selection process for the teams really early in the game, having lived through it myself when Jack played in the 17 games in Winnipeg. I had to get that in there. I love that. So <laughs> where are we in the process? You know, how optimistic are we on the facility side? And then can you give us any update on the team? player side yeah so I mean we're in, we're in pretty good shape for some facilities I mean a lot of facilities really just need some upgrades that sort of thing obviously a couple of facilities that need to be built um, but you know we're from what I understand we're in good shape facility wise now some of the facilities are going to be uh, upgraded right up to you know 2025 but um, you know that's going to happen and it's going to be a great legacy for the province as well uh, to have those facilities after the games uh, in terms of team selection a lot of teams are certainly active most are active at this point some have uh, already identified their teams. I know soccer the last couple of weeks have identified their teams. A lot of teams probably won't um, make their final selections until next year, but uh, every most teams are already in the process of their selection process, have had some camps, have had some competitions. Um, so there's there's definitely uh, a lot to happen in the next, uh, next couple of years. Next year, I would suspect there will be a lot of uh, test events in our province, so national competitions that will be hosted here to get, get ready for uh, 2025. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to take a week's holidays that, that summer to volunteer because it's really a great experience. I mean, we'll have about 5,000 athletes. So it's something that 99.9% of those athletes have never seen and never been to an event like this. They only go with their own single sport competitions, even on the national level. So this is its own kettle of fish, and it will be a memory of a lifetime, regardless of how they finish with personal bests and around the podium. Good to have you on, Troy. Thanks again, Patty. Appreciate the time. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Troy Croft, Executive Director at Sport NL. Let's keep rolling. Go to line number three. John, you're on the air. Yeah, hi, Patty. Hi. I hope, hi. I hope your morning is going well. So far, so good. How about yours? Yeah, um, not, 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 uh, not too great, actually. Um, I've been um, experiencing a lot of uh, headaches um, uh, recently, more so than usual. But um, actually, it started um, on December 31st of 2020, which is when I suspect um, that um, a person I know, in fact, um, in fact, uh, my brother, um, first started hacking um, the cell tower in my town. He's an IT specialist, an IT expert, and he also knows that I'm among the four percent of the population who is extra sensitive to electromagnetic radiation or RF energy. And um, so that's when it started. And before then, I could count on one hand how many headaches I had in my life. And I knew that I was extra sensitive years ago because um, I had used my cell phone without a headset. And when I did that for more than a few minutes, I would start getting these same types of headaches. And ever since then, I was using my head, my, my, my uh, cell phone only with a headset. And then I had no more problems like that, except one time when I went to look at an apartment um, on uh, top floor where there were cell towers above uh, on the roof of the building. And then when I was so close to a cell phone tower, then I also experienced a similar type of headache. But the thing is, myself and most people among this 4% of the population 
we um, we don't normally have any headaches or other physical symptoms from cell towers as long as the cell towers are functioning properly. But if the cell towers malfunction or if they're hacked and made to malfunction, we are the first to notice it. We are the canaries in the coal in the, like in the coal mine. So what happens when it's not functioning properly? So I assume we're talking about uh, radio frequency radiation, right? Yes, exactly. Um, what, um, well, what happens, with, um, also I should say, these are probably the same reasons behind the Havana syndrome, um, which um, initially happened um, between 2016 and 2018 in Havana, Cuba, where some Canadian and American diplomats in the U.S. and Canadian embassies in Cuba experienced similar symptoms that I'm experiencing. And um, after that, uh, a lot of research was done, a lot of studies were done into the into the possible causes of this. And as a matter of fact, the Biden administration released a report last year in 2022 coming to a conclusion that um, even though they weren't certain of what the cause was, they said that it probably was some type of energy weapon and that radio waves could have been used. Yeah, I don't know. But they never... You know, they called it a mass psychiatrist. Psychogenic, I think is the right word there, psychogenic uh, episode. So have you ever been formally diagnosed as being prone or susceptible to the radio frequency radiation and what it means? Because I, what, I don't know a lot about it now, to be honest. But mm-hmm. what we do know... I'd be happy to, yeah, I'd be happy to fill you in. Um, oh, to answer your question, um, as far as I know, there is no testing uh, body, no testing authority that does such things, but I can prove that I'm sensitive. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> um, I drank some water before I started talking, but I guess it's still not perfect. Okay. I can prove it because um, if you were, like, if, if you yourself or anyone else were to stand behind me with a cell phone if you put that cell phone in when it's when it's in a transmit mode like when it when you're talking to someone on it that's when the signal is the strongest if you were to put that within 12 inches of my head i would start getting a headache like within a minute and if you take it away then i wouldn't because the signal from the cell phone basically transmits about 12 inches maybe with a newer ones maybe two feet um, a radius from the phone that, that that's where that's where, where the signal is the strongest and beyond that it's not going to bother you right so it's the same type of signal as the cell tower, except, of course, the cell tower is much stronger. Um, and so the thing is, um, the, the, these headaches, um, it, it, um, it's, it's, it's quite serious. Now, now, the thing is, I think that um, the, um, the reason that uh, the Biden administration and that any research I've done on it has, has have never cited cell towers as being a possible cause of, of Havana syndrome. I mean, Havana syndrome is just a fancy name for, for these types of symptoms, because actually a lot of people around the world um, suffer these types of symptoms, including the former prime, prime minister of Norway. Um, I, I forget the name. I have, I have it um, I, I have it. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I, put, I put a lot of these uh, documents and information together on a, on a YouTube um, a channel that I, I put up for this particular purpose to try and reach as many people as possible with this to see if I can get other people and, and just to inform people and also politicians because I've contacted authorities. I've contacted the police, the fire department, um, my municipality, my local MLA. I've contacted them, and, you know, and, and basically I asked them, I said, can you please test these cell towers? Because according to my research, they have no built-in software to, to determine if they're hacked, right? So 
if they're hacked, there's no electronic cookie crumbs left behind afterwards to show that they're hacked. So the only way to test them, as far as I can tell, is by having a Geiger counter or an EMF detector within the vicinity of the tower, and then it would it would record spikes on the Geiger counter or the EMF detector if 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 the frequencies were beyond, for example, the 300 gigahertz range, which is the established safety standard by the FCC and the CRTC or Industry Canada here in Canada. Okay. So if it was beyond that, have you ever seen a doctor? Oh yeah, I've 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 saw, I saw several doctors last year um um regarding this and um the thing is all do is you know diagnose the headaches but the thing is they you know they cannot they cannot determine like um, they don't have any tests to determine if it's from electromagnetic radiation but I know some other countries are ahead of Canada in this because they actually they actually um, recognize this as a legitimate health condition in several countries around the world I think Sweden's one of them and and and, and so so people so it is recognized by some authorities that this is a legitimate condition and the thing is again like I, I could prove this that I'm one of the extrasensors because if somebody were to stand behind me with a cell phone, like I said, within 12 inches of my head, when that cell phone was transmitting, I would be—I could tell you, right? Like, like a, 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 a person could stand behind me for five minutes, and they could determine which minute of that time the phone was on transmitting. I, I wouldn't see it because I'd be, you know, looking the opposite direction, and I would be able to tell them, right? I would be able to tell them exactly, you know, you know, which, which minute they turned it on or if they turned it on at all, like if they made the call. That, I mean, so I can prove that I'm extra sensitive to this. Um, there's no okay. doubt about. But, the, but, 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 but you see, but, but you see, but you see, Pat. Okay, so, so I just have a few more things to. to, to um, okay, let's get through them like quickly. Go ahead. Okay, but can can I please mention my um, uh, like if they, if people go to YouTube and they just search I suspect my IT pro bro, and I everything is lowercase except IT is capitals that stands for information technology right so IT right. I suspect my IT pro bro if they go to part fifteen of that series part 15 and also part 16 I put a lot of documentation on there to show that radio waves can cause this and to show that cell towers can be hacked because a lot of people yeah, don't I don't know, know about the involvement between you and your brother but the issue of uh, RF and impact on the body I know that if you absorb a lot of it it can cause body heat and I know there's been absolutely documented issues regarding body tissue damage and I don't know if that uh, has anything to do with your headaches but some people can check out their, your YouTube if they are so inclined uh, 30 seconds before I have to okay, go. Okay, Patty, and can, can I ask you, what, can I ask you please one more question, or, or not, not, not just you, but anybody listening out there, the authorities, can the, can the fire department or, or the CRTC or, 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 the, or any politician please contact Industry Canada or the CRTC and ask them to have these towers checked. Now, they can contact me, right? They, they can contact me. They can contact you. I can give you my email address off air if you like. They can contact they, so, so, so they can contact me through you, and then... Exactly, you know, w w w you know, w or I can put my town. I, I, if, I don't know if I can mention my town on the air or not. I mean, that would be. Um, uh, if sure, I, can do I don't that care. And, and, where do you, uh, very quickly, very okay. very quickly. Okay. You can send me an I'm email. In US so Valley. I, I'm. New West Valley. I mean, okay. New West Valley, yeah. So if they were to please check the towers in U.S. Valley, right, and, and they can contact me first. You know, uh, I mean, they can, they can also contact me because I'm, I have a you know, few other suggestions about for how long, they should, how, how long they should check them, right? John, you just send me, John, yeah. send me an email so I yes. have it if anybody wants it. And so you don't use okay, a cell phone good. then? No, no, I don't. This is a landline phone, yeah. and the thing is, I yeah, I don't have an active self now because also my brother's ha has hacked all my devices. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to get into that. 
Yeah, I no, don't no, want to get no, into okay. what no, your brother no, might No, 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 it's okay. I'm, I'm, no, I, but I just want to mention one thing. Last, I was, uh, in, on May 18th of this year, I, I spoke to you about the electrical grid being hacked, uh, potentially being hacked, and that that's why the clocks went ahead by five minutes last September of 2022, when everybody's clocks went ahead by five minutes, people who plugged their clocks in the walls. Yeah, it, if, if, if it wasn't that, though. That. Yeah, I remember the incident, uh, but it wasn't uh, as a result of a hack. Well, according to my research, it could have been because I also have documents that show that the okay. electrical grid is prone to hacking. And when it's go, when it goes beyond 60 hertz, 60 pulses per minute, the, the delivery rate of electricity, the clocks that are plugged in the wall, they keep time by counting their, the, the pulses per second. They're 60 hertz, right? So basically, they will go then a little sure. bit faster as long as it's elevated beyond that. And again, sure. I believe that... I, yeah, yeah, I'm not getting I, into I your brother hacking business. I'm just not doing it. So, but if you send no, me no, an no, email, okay. I'm not. I'm not mentioning his name. I don't mention his name. That, that's you know. I'm, uh, all I'm saying is the electrical grid can be hacked. It can. Anything can be hacked. So you send me that yeah, email yeah, if but, anybody but, but wants. It also. Jeepers, but, but, creepers. But, but also, but, <laughs> I'm sorry, but but the things I'm just a lot, under a lot of stress because I've been going through these. I've been going through this for a long time. My headaches have only been getting worse, and also I know. Um, I know that they're not coincidental, like because, for example, they happen at specific times on the clock, like representing numbers that are significant John, to my brother. John, I'm going to take a break here. You oh, send me an email address. So, 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 so I, I will send you email. I, I, thank you very much, Patty, for for, for letting me express my uh, exp- express my views on these important, very important issues. Take your take care of yourself. Okay, bye-bye. There you go. Let's take a break. Come back for housing. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, say more to the PC member for CBS, Conception Bay South. That's Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Patty, I was uh, calling in to discuss about the ongoing housing crisis, and there's been lots in the news and lots of debate and lots of activity in the House Assembly this week on this issue as well. And and as recently as yesterday, when we, uh, we've we read about it, and I don't plan on, I know really intention of beating up on Minister Poik, uh, other than the fact to say that you know, when you misquote, I guess that happens in life. And I mean, he said eleven. He said seven hundred fifteen should have been eleven or whatever. And we can play with it all day long. And I mean, uh, we made our point on that, and I, I'm willing to move on. But I think the reason I move on, though, is not move on from Mr. Poik. I mean, that's that, that's that's done over. And fair enough, he apologised. But I've been around governments a long time, Petty, and before I was ever elected, I was in the back rooms, working with ministers in the minister's offices, as many know, and you're probably yourself included. And I went to many news conferences, many speaking engagements. That was my role. And I was connected to the eighth floor, and I was connected to the communications within government. And if a minister misspoke, it was tracked momentarily. Like, it was, my phone would light up at a news conference if a minister I was there would spoke or, they need, or misspoke, they needed the minister to correct something. I'd be a news con- a new release come out from the department to be corrected. And, I mean, that happens. It's not a minister of the Crown yet, and if I ever become one myself, I'm sure I'll misspeak. It's not about that. It's about how it was dealt with after the misspoke, after the mis- the, this, he misspoke. I mean, that's it, the issue for me is, totally. you know, it's one thing to admit that you misspoke. Look, I do it for a living, and I misspeak all the time. 
The, the issue is just owning it and owning it in a timely fashion. And again, I'm in no mood to beat up on uh, Paul Pike or anybody else either, but I guarantee you he's comms director. I heard it. I guarantee other senior bureaucrats in his department heard it. I guarantee the executive branch heard it. The premier's office heard it. So when we are talking about people on pins and needles and the anxiety associated with housing or lack thereof, being accurate with information is key. So, you know, there's a long, long way between 750 and 11. So, fair enough. He spoke to it yesterday, but the question would also be, would he have spoken to it if it wasn't for Rob Antle? So... Yeah, no, and that's a fair point, and I mean, it was a good job by Rob on that, it's no doubt, and, you know, but I guess, again, to go back to that issue was, I mean, the Premier was using 750, you know, he comes out and says those options, and, you know, there's all the Siobhan Cody was, uh, or Minister Cody, I should say, was uh, out with a, she was, because I seen a video somewhere, she was you speaking really on, on playing with numbers. I guess, Patty, what, what I'm trying to point, I'm trying to make is, and it's not even about beating people up, a statement fact, and it, I guess it annoyed me, and it should annoy a lot of people. I mean, we're dealing with a housing crisis, people can point fingers and blame, that's fine, we don't need that we need to find solutions but you can't use you can't use misinformation to take the heat off you that sounds really good if it was accurate that the government are actually moving forward and doing something now they're not dealing with the media stuff right here now but they're moving forward and i heard those numbers myself ironically and i said well that's fair enough that's you know fair fair game you know i, I thought it was fine you were i wasn't calling you criticizing them when he said 750 units so i thought it was fine obviously we find it was not accurate so i guess my criticism my, my jab today would be at the you know furious administration in general why someone in that ranks never corrected that and i i can't help but say and i hate to throw these bars but they obviously felt that it was taking the pressure off, and so no one said nothing, and let's hope no one picks up on it. And without Rob Antle doing that investigative reporting, uh, we probably would never have known. And I think that's a sad indictment of this, you know, fury in the government. And it's unfortunate, and we have to get up in our place and, you know, hammer away at these issues day in, day out. And trust you me, I mean, I, I don't mind going to battle with anyone, but I don't really take joy out of, uh, you know, hammering a minister because he misspoke. I think the Premier should protect his minister and stand up and take some responsibility as part of his is a government. His administration, and ultimately the answer to the eighth floor. So, you know, we got I got serious issues in my own district with housing. I have people that are almost, believe it or not, people who think it's only St. John's Metro, but I have it up here as well. And I got I got seniors coming to my office on a daily basis. Uh, the rents are spiked; they can't afford it. They, you know, there are fixed incomes. They're looking for affordable housing. They can't stay with her too. I mean, Patty, this is. I guess 40 of us across the province are most, I would say, every one of us are dealing with this on a daily basis. So people are going, government are going to give people hope. Let's hope that their information is correct, because I find it offensive, and I think everyone in this province should find it offensive when they get misled. Whether it, whether it be knowingly or not, and in this case, someone knew. Someone knew. Whether it, Mr. Poik obviously didn't realize after the fact, and he was man enough to stand up in the house and apologize, and that's, that's, that's big of him, and I give him, you know, I got a lot of respect for Paul, Paul Poik. So, but I think he was, uh, you know, he's out there, and he was short on a limb, and it's unfortunate. And, I mean, you know, we have three emergency requests for emergency debates in the house this week to discuss housing, discuss cost of living by ourselves and the NDP, and they turned down each option each time to speak a rule it out of order or whatever, and because it wasn't his emergency, yet they shut down those 3 o'clock yesterday evening, to three or four bills on the paper, turned down a motion to debate, emergency debate, and lift, I'm, I'm the opposition house leader, I was I had no idea, I had no idea why the house closed, I still don't know to this day, Patty, I tried to get an answer and I never got one, and uh, you know, again, it's offensive, we got these issues, we got a tent city across the street, we got people right across the province who are, you know, 
know, struggling, cost living. But you, you hear it. You, I mean, I'll repeat it to you. <laughs> and it's, a, it's, a, yeah, I had all you hear it. And it's, but it's a real struggle, Patty. And it's a, from our role, where we sit. I mean, we're willing to sit down in that House Assembly and debate. I mean, whatever time it takes. And it's not about theatrics or it's trying to get solutions to these problems. Because I rather see solutions sometimes than score political points. Because ultimately, it's, it's not easy as an MHA to sit down day in day out and you hear it yourself. And people on the other end of that phone are looking at you desperate. I could put the politics aside any day of the week if it means getting those looked after and unfortunately uh, government don't always play the same game so I mean I'm, you know, I just wanted to raise that with you this morning it's, uh, it was concerning and it is concerning and I think government needs to do a better job right around, all around and this wasn't a good look for them this week uh, you know, I was often wondering why I couldn't get status updates on the level of the status of construction for any of the 750 units because if I'm in the department that's an opportunity to scream from the rooftop here's the progress we're making and I would ask and ask and ask and nothing I even asked the minister on this program and there wasn't much of an answer coming back and I'm thinking how can that be obviously there's got to be status reports submitted to government it's a government program you yep. think we know but apparently we don't uh, I'm going to ask you a question about the housing court before I let you go sure so QP's out there in the news saying you know it'd probably be more wise even on the cost benefit uh, issue if we had more tradespeople working for Newfoundland Labrador housing because at this point about it's 140 150 units that are uninhabitable why because it's hard to get a contractor in the private sector and number two we don't have enough staff to avoid all these units being uh, to the state where no one can live in them plus you know the ongoing maintenance so we don't end up at this end of the road i'm not advocating hiring more people to work for the public sector necessarily but it'd be nice to get a comparison between how much it costs to hire a contractor from a private company versus what it would cost benefits and everything included to have more tradespeople on staff because to have that many units uninhabitable there is a reason why what do you think no, Patty, uh, actually, ironically, and the unions probably don't like to hear me say this, and it's not about a union thing either, but we're in a crisis, and it's not about, you know, shooting the housing staff in the foot. Uh, right now, we're shortage staff right across the board. Everyone is struggling. If a contractor can come in and get this housing crisis, get to get units up to scratch and get people in units and take the pressure off the system, I see nothing wrong with it. But, but do a cost analysis. If it's cheaper to get your own staff in, no problem. But, I mean, I think doing the numbers, it may be cheaper to get a contractor, but I don't know, but I'd be totally agreed. That you can't do it like right now it's not, it's not working what they're doing now obviously not working the short staff uh, people in unions are crying out but I mean how do you get these trades workers in they're not going to go in there when they can make more elsewhere padding that's a big problem with the with employment options now and, and these trade workers they're going on these projects and they're making way way more money than yeah. they ever make with housing and so not, there's no attraction to come into housing so what's your other option do you let it keep snowballing or do you do something emergency crisis measured and that would be a contractor so not to be permanent but to get you over this hump yeah, you know, preventative maintenance, because a contractor is not going to come in to do a small job in one unit for Newfoundland Labrador Housing. The problem there becomes that small job, there's another small job on top of it a month later, another one three or four months later. Next thing you know, you ha actually have a big job, and you still can't get a private contractor for one unit. So somehow figure this out. And after we go through this private contracting exercise, let's seriously put some numbers on paper on both sides of the ledger. Here's what it costs, and here's you have to factor in this societal reality too it comes with some financial implication when people are being supported whether it be in a hotel room or an emergency shelter versus being in a housing corporation unit so it's not just about the unit itself is where are these people with because they're not in the unit and that comes with an associated cost as well and Patty, you know, and that's right. There's one thing I'd like to just add, you know. Uh, one of the social determinants of health, and in the health accord itself, 
uh, that Sister Davis and uh, Dr. Parfrey authored. That was one of the main social terms of health, housing. Yep. It's not a, not a shelter is not going to provide housing. So you look at the pressure on our health care system. I mean, it's a no-brainer when you look at it right across the board. I mean, it's amazing that we keep debating this stuff and we're not doing something more, you know, it's playing with numbers and that. That's, that, that's not solving nothing. Like, it, it amazes me. I guess that's what I, I say sometimes and I say it often and I just say it to my colleagues and I, 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 it's unbelievable and I'll say it to you. I can't figure it out because to me it's like uh, why we keep debating this, why, you know, why we just, you know, if you're doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result and we both know the answer to that. So I just think that we need to do better and so we got to do soon too, Patty, because again, it's not politics. I mean, it's not about that. I mean, we got people on the street. Winter's coming and it's not a good look. And I had a provider guy in my district uh, two weeks ago just for Thanksgiving. He was living in a car. Uh, someone I knew personally, but I couldn't help. And I got, I got I finally helped. I got him helped and uh, thank God for that. But it took a lot of stress and struggle. And I, I lost sleep over it, to be honest with you. Maybe because I knew him, but still it was, how do you, how do you sleep at night with that? And with winter yeah. coming on, we're all human beings, Patty. And uh, with winter coming on, it's, uh, it's a scary thought while we got facing this and, uh, as a society. And I mean, it's across, I mean, right across the province, people are found all over the province. So, it's, uh, you know, so it's, uh, I appreciate you for your time, as always, and I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Thanks, Barry. Okay, buddy. Take Thanks. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Barry Patton, PC member for CBS. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, good morning to get on the show. In and around town, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Michael, you're on the air. Hey, good to talk to you guys again. Uh, you know, interesting visit I had out there. And almost four weeks altogether in, in the rest of Maritime Canada, including you guys. And then I left my car parked in Callis, Maine, over there by the border with St. Stephen, New Brunswick. And I thought, well, let's just drive in to see a couple little places like the little town of St. Andrews and stuff on, on Monday evening. And I guess your silly customs people are just bored and got nothing better to do than pick one random American to just give the third degree to, ask all these questions, search all my car, take everything out, everything back. I got all this stuff in my car from traveling for months and months around North America. Uh, They didn't put anything back in the way it was in there, so it looked like a bunch of uh, angry monkeys had gone through my car, basically. It took hours to reassemble it. And then after all that, like, oh, no, you can't enter Canada today. You've uh, you've got a few minor arrests back in Las Vegas and little things like this and all that, and you were accused of DUI once and blah, 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 blah. It wouldn't be super specific, just kind of like, you're not good enough to come in our country again. But I was just there for almost four weeks. I spent probably $1,500, which is a lot of money for me. And and what the hell is all this about? And talking to people since then, people who live in Gallus, I talked to a rock and roll DJ in Halifax who's from Scotland and used to live in Toronto and go to Bill's games and get harassed. Going Derek back Diamond? The border. You were talking to One Derek story. Diamond? Yeah, yes. <laughs> heard of Derek Diamond. Dominic Diamond. Or Derek. Sometimes I yeah. call him Derek by mistake. I don't know why. Yeah, he's a, he's a fun show to listen to on another station. But And I'm like, this is a common thing. I, I'd heard about that a little before, you know, coming up here recently. and But like, geez. And I, I'm going to talk, eventually get around and talk to that nice lady, Tracy, at your tourism board and maybe the one for the whole country and says, what's going on with these people? You know, don't they know you're supposed to, like, welcome tourists into their country so you'll spend money? I live in Las Vegas. That might be one of the reasons they 
decided to target or profile me. Oh, Vegas, uh, full of full of crime and corruption and bad people. Let's let's give this guy the third degree. Well, I think there's I some other know. notorious cities that might be atop Vegas in that yeah. category. It's not like you're the mob. Uh, just quickly, so what border? So, Michael, no, uh, um, it, it was it was very very upsetting and insulting. I'm like, what? I mean, geez, I just wanted. I, I even had some a little surprise gift of food for some nice people in St. George at a. And a mini martyr gave me some free leftover food when I didn't even need it. They were just being nice. And I brought him a bag of potatoes and some cheap wine that they had on sale at IGA in Callis. But nope. I, I came back the next night and just left it there at the side of their building. Says, here, you take it to them or give it to somebody else. I don't care. I can't, you know? Michael? <laughs> I was, Michael? I was a bit steamed. Michael? Yes. Where did you cross initially for the first time you came in for the four-week visit you had to Canada? Where was that? Like Windsor or St. Yeah. Stephen? No, no. No, same place. I mean, well, I would, you know, spend a day and a half in Niagara Falls in August, and there they just, you know, wave everybody through because there's a big crowd. They don't, you know, thoroughly inspect people or ask you 30 minutes of nosy questions. No, this is the same place back in uh, September 18th on a Sunday, a quiet Sunday. And, yeah, there were a lot of questions then, and, you know, do you have enough money in your bank and stuff like that? Because I was just on a bicycle with a backpack. You know, they probably thought I was coming up there to be a Canadian bum instead of an American bum, which I'm not. <laughs> but that was fine then. I eventually got in. It was Monday. It was just like, and they weren't mean or rude or nothing like that. It's that, that legendary Canadian politeness. Even when they're being jerks, they're doing it in a nice Canadian way. <laughs> That's how I would describe it. <laughs> and uh, it, it, But, you know, I can laugh a little now, but, yeah, I was just totally ugh, sulking in my car all day Tuesday in the little town of Calais, spending a little money there to help them out. Sure. I think you're talking callous, man. Just hold on, Michael. So when you crossed initially on your bicycle, did you buy a car in Canada? No, no. I I rode part of the way to St. John, New Brunswick. Got a ride from somebody because that's a a long way to go with 50 pounds of stuff on your back. But... And then took buses everywhere else and the ferry out to you guys and another expensive bus across the island. I, I, I probably spent just as money as much money as if I had driven and, and bought your expensive gas to get around. <laughs> and But although I would have okay. spent less time if I brought my car with me. So, you know, uh, this and that and all. I mean, I still had a great time. Lots of wonderful pictures and a new, few new Facebook friends. A wonderful bartender in the other St. John, if you're ever there, named Jennifer at Dewey's. Stop in and say hi to her. <laughs> so, okay. And uh, and some other interesting places. Uh, the Down Under Pub in, in the other St. John. And, and, There's uh, only one St. John. Yeah. St. John is New Brunswick. St. John's is uh, in my province. Yeah, yeah. Interesting confusion. Well, we have two Portlands in our country. I'm in one of them, and I used to live in the other one, which is much bigger. <laughs> going to Boston next, which is <laughs> okay, cool. the only Boston they like to say. Yeah, oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, well, but, I'm uh, sorry for your border troubles. Are you back in Vegas now? Where are you? No, no, no. Like I said, I'm in Portland, Maine. Just, oh, you're you know, in Portland, I've got a long Maine. ways to go. I, I still got a lot of sightseeing to do in New York and Washington and other places on the way back home. I'll just get there sometime, hopefully before Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, that is. Uh, I appreciate the update. Uh, Sorry for your woes at the border and safe travels. That's what a lot of people are saying, but uh, I don't know what you guys can do about that. You know, make these people a little more reasonable uh, if that's possible. Well, I don't imagine there's a whole lot of clout we have with Canadian Border Services. Uh, I appreciate mm-hmm. the time this morning, Michael. You take care of yourself. Stay in touch. Yeah. Okay, appreciate buddy. your time, too. All the best. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, still another full hour to speak with you. Don't go away. 
Join Craig Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for the Torngat Mountains. That's Leela Evans. Good morning, Leela. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'm just calling in to talk a little bit uh, about um, a petition that I presented and raised a question in the House of Assembly. And also, um, PC member Helen Ottenheimer also raised it as well. Um, we have a petition there from Jack Whalen, and uh, he's been in the news a lot about trying to get the Statue of Limitations removed. And it, 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 it's really impacting people who've been harmed uh, while in care, you know, um, when they were young growing up. And uh, as adults, when they start to recover from the trauma to a point where they can actually take legal action, uh, statute of limitations prevents them from doing that. So I think this is a very important uh, um, issue to raise. And, and to me, when I was looking at uh, the situation, that applies to, you know, everybody that's been harmed. Patty, um, the statute of limitations not only is unfair, I, I think in some ways it's criminal because it denies people justice. Let's just, for context, for the listener who might not know exactly what we're talking about, Jack Whalen spent 730 days in solitary confinement between the age of 13 and 17 out of Whitburn. Education was not kept up with, and of course, what we're talking about with the statute of limitations is there is no statute of limitations regarding sexual abuse when in care, but it does include people who endure physical abuse as children. So that's the argument that's being made here, is that there should not be any limitation just because you weren't sexually abused, just so people know what we're talking about. Yes, Patty, and, and like as MHA sitting in the House of Assembly, uh, I, I was I was shocked at, uh, you know, like the lack of action, and we brought this forward to the government, hoping to get a commitment. And the, the reason why I'm calling in now, just to raise public awareness, because I think um, the public should be upset as well, not just us in the House of Assembly, they're in opposition, trying to get the government to change the statute of limitations. Uh, I, I think everybody should be calling on the government to change it because like, of, of the harm that's been done. And, and just looking at his case, you, you, you know, you, 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 you've identified some of the harm done to him. But in actual fact, Patty, the limitations really is about when somebody becomes an, an adult, 18 years old, then you, have, you only have two years to sort of get over your trauma, um, get resources, uh, get knowledge on the legal system, and be able to take the steps to actually file. And, you know, that, that's impossible. That, that's basically very impossible because, like, the case that Jack's making, and he's using himself, he's bringing forward himself uh, as an example. As you said, he went in for a petty crime at the age of 13. While he was in there, the treatment that he was exposed to, the way he was treated was, was labeled torture, torture, right? And the mental cruelty that he was exposed to. Then when he came out of the system at 17 years old, you know, being exposed to all this harsh treatment, now he's supposed to get his, uh, you know, he's get, get, get his bearings and, and, and make a claim against the courts, uh, in the courts. So for me, as as MHA, uh, I'm I'm trying to actually bring this government 
to the point now where we would actually introduce legislation to change the statute of limitations so that, uh, you know, people who actually are harmed have legal recourse. And now, like, to, to look at why we're, we're actually um, um, bringing this forward is because a lot of times people, when they actually get to a point where they have, uh, I guess, the, um, the inner strength, to, to start talking to other people and, and just start to deal with what happened to them, it's too late, right? So I, I think this is very, very important, and I, I think the general public should be really upset about it as well. And I, I also want to, um, you know, I, I want to also acknowledge that this is something the NDP, the PCs, and Independent Pauline are working together on in the House of Assembly. We're all basically trying to champion this bring forward the, the, the changes to the legislation is something that we all agree on. And if you, uh, you talk to any one of us, we say that this needs to be done. So we, we really want um, you know, some commitment from the government so Jack Whalen can actually go back and start his cancer treatments. He's been diagnosed with cancer. He's been in the House of Assembly all this past week, you know, putting off his treatment because he knows what happens. He's gone through it. He doesn't want anyone else to go through it, and he wants to change this 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 law that actually is so harmful to people. We're even talking about no longer allowed to use solitary confinement in adult corrections because of what we understand to be the impact on the inmate when prolonged solitary is the choice by the correctional officers. There, you know. Inside this whole statute, so Jack Whalen had until his 21st birthday or until, which is a lot of gray area, as to whether or not he was understood the abuse that he that he uh, endured up until the age of 29 for that discovery to you know be exemption to the statute. The issue here, on the 1st of June 1989, the Hughes Inquiry first sat, delivered their report in April of 1992, and as a result, the sexual abuse was taken out of the Limitations Act. So begs the question. If we're not saying that the trauma is akin to sexual abuse, physical, emotional, mental abuse, what's the argument being made by government? Or is it as simple as this? If that limitation is removed, then all of a sudden Pandora's box will be open and the claimants will come forward in droves. And consequently, that would be a financial matter. I hate to be as cruel and callous and to boil things back to money, but sometimes that is the deciding factor. Your thoughts? Okay, my thoughts? As a person, my thoughts as a person is that this is still allowed to continue, right? I mean, it, it, it basically people who are in charge of children in care are protected because if a child is abused, a youth is abused, they only have two years after becoming an adult to be able to get the resources. Like looking at Jack now, he was denied education. He was denied mental and like mental growth uh, to a point where that he would actually, when he became an adult, he would be a healthy uh, uh, being. And he was seriously harmed. So this is still ongoing. We, we got to actually send a message to people who are looking after our children in care that you cannot abuse them, you cannot torture them, you cannot, you know, you cannot undermine their mental wellness and their physical wellness. And it seems like right now, as long as you don't sexually abuse a child, you can basically do whatever you want. And then at the end of the day, if they don't have the wherewithal to be able to bring 
to, to file charges within that two-year limitation, then you're, you're, you get away scot-free. Yeah, uh, and, and or civil action. Best, yeah, yep. That that's something that really, really needs to, uh, to to be looked at, right, in terms of civil action. But but in in actual fact, civil action is the only recourse that people will have to be able to reclaim what was taken from them. Like you know what I mean? Like for for, for somebody who's who's been abused and and lost like lost their education, and now you're an adult. You need you need that you you need to be able to actually bring forward that claim to be able to bring up your quality of life to compensate. It's about compensation for what was stolen from you, right? It, it's not just about criminal charges, you know. No, no, of course. That's why I've mentioned civil. Yeah. yeah. Yep, and and in and and also too, the government always uses this example. Oh, it's going to cost too much, but it's not about it's going to cost too much. What cost is is are, are, is society enduring because of the harm done to to children? And we got to make sure that 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 like that stops. And and uh, unfortunately, without this deterrent. You know, I, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's going to stop because the people who actually abuse children and and take advantage of, of children and youth, you know, the, the, there's there's something that needs to be put in place to actually really deter them. And also, it's not only about deterring; it's about making sure that the people who've been harmed, you know, do have some sort of recourse that can have a, a get get access to 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 funds get uh, access to justice so that they can actually have uh, some quality of life, right, uh, and, and help them get over the harm. Like, this statute of limitations really should not be in place. And, and uh, the reason why, um, you know, like, it's, it's so urgent, yes, we, we got Jack Whalen there. But more importantly is that what other provinces across Canada, you know, has the statute of limitations on the other one province yeah. because that is, it sounds it sound fair, Patty. And, like, uh, I'm sorry, but it, 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 it is really upsetting. Like, when I was reading through, you know, what Jack Whalen had uh, experienced and, and now he's been de- denied this, uh, this chance of justice uh, for himself and his family, you know, uh, I, I just thought, my God, if, if they don't listen to this, and if they don't bring forward legislation to change it, then, of course, they really don't care. I appreciate the time this morning, Leela. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Leela Evans, NDP member for the Torngat Mountains. Uh, when we come back, Mark's there to talk about housing and then tons of time for you. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line one. Mark, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's hey, it going? Okay, you? Not bad. I'm a little bit uh, disappointed, as you might guess, about uh, yesterday's housing kerfuffle. I'm very impressed with with uh, Rob Antle and Arianna Kellen for bringing all that into light. Um, 11 is a big number versus 750 um, for built, built houses. Um, but, uh, you know... It, other than being disappointed, we kind of have to move on. Where do we go next? How can we deal with this in the next three to six months? That's the main thing that really has been on my mind, other than, you know, being up at Tent City and seeing downtown and uh, just seeing this issue perpetuate our, our province, really. So where to next is an excellent question because we, people can browbeat Paul Pike all day like that doesn't change the housing issue one iota, even though I think it is not great, the furthest thing from how some of those numbers were bandied about versus the reality on the ground. So if the question is where to next, what's the answer? 
Um, I mean, I think the answer is like a lot of what I've been thinking about is modular housing. We need stuff to happen. We need housing fast. How do we do that? You know, it takes quite a long time to build a house. Um, do we look at some of the existing structures and repurpose them? Do we look at uh, housing like, you know, like you'd see in a work site like Muskrat Falls, modular? I've been looking a lot into that because it seems like here in the province, we, we're so we're we're so ingenious. We can do this stuff. We have we've got the College of the North, of the North Atlantic. We've got MUN Engineering. We've got uh, innovation like you wouldn't believe in this in this province. And so you know that type of initiative, even if even if we don't go outside the province where this exists already, and you know we could just order modular units. Um, I think that there's the opportunity to really build something here that also creates jobs here. I wonder about the repurpose of buildings. You know, and I look around when I drive around the city in particular, and you see the obvious ones that could be potential candidates. But I don't know if we really have a firm understanding of what a repurpose actually looks like. The one that people tell me all the time are things like the Hoyles Escazoni, for instance. The people who once worked and operated inside the confines of the Hoyles Escazoni say it's a death trap. There's also going to be majorly concerns with things like fire suppression and egress and asbestos and all those things. I don't even know if that's quicker than building a house, to be honest with you, or a four-unit apartment building. I'd be curious if someone has ever done any of the groundwork or the footwork to see what exactly would be entailed because it is kind of set up where you have your own individual rooms and those types of things but is it as fundamental as just say okay now this building is housing i just wonder what that really looks like because every abandoned or currently not used building would have a different set of circumstances associated with it but i just wonder if anyone at the governmental level is even considering it because it's not that long ago we were talking about repurposing government buildings or selling them off whether it be old schools or municipal offices or whatever the case may be, but nothing really happens. So I don't even know what kind of work has been done on that front. Yeah, I mean, I've got, I think there's two sides to that. Uh, you know, one is it's, it's really, it's even more disappointing that, we, that what happened yesterday and what's been happening and, and, you know, covering up how many houses have been built and trying to, you know, trying government perhaps trying to make themselves look good when, they haven't performed anything, uh, or 11 houses, I suppose. You know, the, there's that, which sort of gives me the sense that they're not ready to have the conversations that need to have to figure out those solutions. So, like, you know, if, if there's, I don't know, uh, like we know that the old Princess Auto is a warehouse now. Um, you know, in, in that type of structure, is there a way? Certainly, like, you know, getting into a warehouse or an old, you know, an old department store is a lot better than setting up a tent in, uh, you know, October, November, December, January in Newfoundland. Um, that's, there's no question about that, but yeah, there's going to be some issues that come up. I mean, uh, you know, like my experience is that people that, that there are a lot of mental health and addictions issues that are connected with homelessness. Um, there's gotta be the wraparound supports no matter what. Um, I guess the flip side of that, Patty, is that, you know, uh, there is an opportunity to have these conversations still. And it sounds like opposition, uh, you know, like the, the NDP, the PCs, Eddie Joyce and, and Paul Lane are are pushing. And so, you know, can can government actually open up 
you know, and have those conversations does. I believe strongly that the public service and our local organizations like, you know, like the choices, like the, like these celebrities, uh, like the gathering place, like there is an incredible amount of knowledge there. Um, so we just had to really, we would just really have to have that conversation. And so who's, who's going to start that conversation? It's not, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking that, that government's going to really open up and allow that to happen, but we got to get moving. We got to get to work because the next three to six months, it's for sure going to get cold. Like I've said this before and people think, you know, maybe it's a, an unfortunately potentially negative thing to think about housing solutions. But I have yet to see any developer or anyone with any single bit of experience in home building to be able to come up with a plan based on the amount of time it takes to get permits in place and what have you, then the cost of construction, then the concept of if you're in the private sector, you're not doing it for fun. You're doing it for some level of profit. Market housing and affordability, they seem like square pegs and round holes to me. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's going to take all, you know, all municipalities. You know, there's an MNL conference this, this weekend, I believe, and hopefully that, I'm sure that will be discussed quite a bit there. But it's going to take all levels of government to really make this happen and to be working together in a way that I've never seen. Um, but we're in, a, we're in the biggest crisis I've ever seen here. Um, lastly, I guess, Patty, uh, you know, I wanted to say it was – incredibly heartbreaking while all this was going down in the house yesterday i was over at 10 city i saw two people stroll up with a suitcase a backpack and a sobey's bag uh it was a it was a couple they've been married for 30 years they they just moved back but you know they're they're seniors and and they had nothing um one of them is looking for work he's a forklift operator um he's got all his tickets um, if anybody has a line on work for him, then I'd love to be able to pass it on to him. If anybody has a, uh, a rental that they can offer to these folks, then, uh, you know, currently they, we, we had to work quite hard actually just to get them into a hotel last night. Um, obviously the, uh, minister's office had a few things to think about yesterday, but, but, uh, they did come through with that. And the next steps are a job and a home. Uh, and then, then they can continue to rebuild. Two pretty important components to a reasonable life. Uh, Mark, I appreciate the time and the effort you're putting in. Thank you. Thank you for all you do, Patty, and the conversations have been really great around this topic. Appreciate I appreciate that. your time. Have a nice weekend. You too. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's get another one in before the news. Let's go to line two. Anne, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning. Um, I heard a news item on your last report, and it said about the, the um, gathering place that they had 84 employees. Who pays them? The gathering place. Where does the money come from for the gathering place? Uh, basically core funding, fundraising. Isn't that money supposed to be for the people? Well, of course, someone's got to administer the supports and the services to the people. There's inevitably going to be some paid employees. There's lots of volunteers there as well. But I suppose you can't have a service without someone who's uh, delivering or administrating it. Not to say that 84 is the proper number at the gathering place. I don't know. 84 seems outlandish to me. Some time ago, I heard that there were 66. That I couldn't believe. And now I hear 84. Um, way back, I was a volunteer there for something like 13, 14 years, up to a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, it changed very much 
when the nuns were taken out of there. Now, I don't... Very much. Some of them were very hurt. One example was one day when we were at um, our lunch in the um, volunteers' lunch room, and this older sister came in with the nun's habit on, right? And she was just about in tears and said, this is not what the gathering place was supposed to be. This is when it was all the changes were happening. This is a question based on the fact that I don't know the answer. So the nuns were told their services were no longer required and please vacate the premises, or was it something I won't. I, I can't else? say that that's how it was approached, okay? But they weren't, their services weren't there any longer. Okay. I'd like to know what happened there. I would like to know, too. Some people came, out, came in and took over, and what I was told brought in their own people to do the jobs. Paul Davis uh, has reached out to me in the recent past. I believe he's out of the province at this very moment in time, but he's yeah. asked me to come down for a look around, and he also would like to come back on the program. So we can put this to it, because this story is based on the fact that the staff voted to the tune of like 80 or 90% to join QP. So that gives me a good launching point to talk about staff, that decision, and why they need so many, based on the fact you said it was 66 not long ago, now it's 84. Well, Correct. 84 who were eligible to vote anyway. So yeah. I can put that to Mr. Davis no problem. Paddy, I would much appreciate that. Happy to do it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate yours, and Have a nice weekend. You too, my love. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, it is time for the newscast. So today is the release date, or as they say, when the album drops. Sunny Don't Go Away, a tribute to Ron Hines, produced by Alan Doyle and Corey Tedford. They picked 20 tracks, and of course, Ron, the man of a thousand songs, they picked 20 tracks to be covered by some of the best artists that they could find, or were actually probably clamoring to be part of this collaboration. Uh, Alan Doyle, one of the producers, coming up right after this. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Sunny Don't Go Away, a tribute to Ron Himes, set for a release today, October the 20th. One of the producers, Alan Doyle, in con- uh, conjunction with his partner in crime, Corey Tedford, have brought this brilliant tribute to the great Ron Hines. To be, let's go to line one. Good morning, Alan Doyle. You're on the air. Good morning. How goes it? Could not be better. How about you? Oh, fantastic. Thanks for having us on to talk about this cool project. I'm happy to have you on. It was always inevitable that someone was going to take on this collaboration and a tribute to Ron Hines. How was it born? Oh, I think, as you say, when Ron passed so suddenly and uh, so early and uh, prematurely uh, as a young man, I think all the artists in St. John's, the musicians, the actors, everybody wanted to pay tribute to him in, in various ways. And, and very quickly, the music community, I think, all wanted to do something, you know, uh, with regards to celebrating his canon and legacy. Uh, but it's just a difficult thing to get together. But the pandemic hit, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, we, everybody was available, and everybody was eager to do it. And it was a delight, and uh, I felt very honored to be at the Helena, to be honest. How do you whittle it down to the 20 artists? And, I mean, it's a real who's who, and I would imagine there's tons of singers and songwriters and other bands out there who would love to be part of this. How did you bring together the group of 20? I just, we, me and Corey and, uh, and Louie over at Sonic Records, my, my management, that, that we, we sort of made a long list 
and like of, of 25, 30 acts that we thought could cover, uh, you know, a variety of songs and a variety of genres and a variety of, you know, uh, generations and a variety of geographical and, and just trying to get a broad range. And, and literally, I'm not kidding. The first 20 we asked all said yes. Of course. <laughs> Everyone said yes. <laughs> And then comes the tricky piece. Now, there are so many great songs that people could cover. How did it go about who got to pick first? <laughs> well, we sort of did it just in order of what, you know, how, how we were going to be able to record people. And um, and everybody, I, I, I had suggestions ready for everybody, but I, I made sure I let everybody come with their own phase first. And you would be surprised, because I certainly was surprised, how many people came with a song they wanted to record that nobody else had picked. Like almost everybody had, a, I'd say 15 or 16 of the 20 songs on this record were, were picked by the, the bands themselves, the acts themselves, and no one else really picked them. Like it was very interesting how like everybody had different favorites that they wanted to do. And it was, that, that, that's a real sign of an incredible catalog, I suppose. Absolutely. And the song that you and the Dardanelles chose was the St. John's Walsh, which I think is probably my favorite, although it's hard to pick one. Yeah. And incredibly, Kelly Loader is the 20th track on this record, picked Sonny's Dream. Why? No one else had picked it. I mean, which is just yeah. amazing to me. Sonny's Dream has been uh, recorded and covered at least uh, 200 times. And just for a little side story, the day after Ron died, there was a lot of tributes on this program, and just coincidentally, Kenny Rogers was in Newfoundland performing a couple of shows. He was en route from St. John's to Cornerbrook, had him on the show, and he brought forth his condolences to Ron Hines and knew Sonny's dream. So yeah. just amazing the, uh, the reach that Ron Hines' tunes have had. Uh, especially Sonny's dream. And, and I sort of had it in my mind that... Sonny's Dream might be like a 21st track, like a Kamalgi kind of thing, but I'll do a little bit of it or something. Because I honestly didn't think anyone would pick it. But Kelly did. And I'm so glad Kelly did because, oh, the version that Kelly does on this record is spectacular. And it's so personal and lovely and gentle and powerful at the same time. Uh, I've listened to it. You and Louie were gracious enough to send me a stream, and I've had a go at it. Look, and I hate to pick a couple because I don't want to leave anybody out, but her rendition of Sonny's Dream is really quite something. And what also struck me is just how perfectly some of the tracks lined up with the bands or the artists themselves. Because I've known most of these bands, most of these artists, and have followed their career, listened to their tunes. So to hear a savant like Tim Baker doing Leaving on the Evening Tide, just nuts. Uh, Jody Richards since Cryer's Paradise, killer. Amazing, isn't it? What it and, and again, it, like, it was such a variety of uh, approaches, you know, and one of the hard things uh, for me and Corey was to just to try to accommodate all the different things that people wanted to do. And we really wanted people to come in the door with as much of their own, you know, notions and arrangements on it as, as they wanted, you know. And in cases like, like Tim and Jody, they had this vision about how they wanted these songs to go and myself and Corey really just helped them figure out how to make that happen. And then in other cases, uh, you know, we, we, we did everything from the ground up if the artist wanted us to do that, you know? And so it was, it was really varied how, uh, way to do a record and, and a collaboration. I'm so proud of, uh, of the work that everybody did, uh, you know, Corey, especially, um, easily, uh, one of the, the greatest, um, engineers and producers in Atlanta, Canada right now, just, you know, uh, and so proud of the community for coming together to do this. This, uh, I'm in Toronto as we speak today because I'm doing press up here for it. And like 
everybody up here who's heard and seen this whole project, they're up, they're they just they're blown away. Like this, they you know, it's funny that they it's such a great look for our musical community uh, to have pulled this off in, with such grace, and, and and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. How different is it? Because if you sit down and do a record with a band, their own standalone record, not a collaboration, then, you know, say, for instance, The Once, doing Atlantic Blue. I mean, yeah. Geraldine and Phil and Andrew, I mean, that just sounds like a song that The Once would do. So yeah. how does it go? Because, you know, the engineers and the producers, you work with them, you try to tweak things, add things, subtract things to make the record cohesive and sound like it's all The Once sitting live from the floor kind of stuff. How different is it, yeah. different is it when you go with 20 different artists with their own professional background? background their own long cvs or resumes so how different is that approach and to, to add to that we, we did most of this during the pandemic when we couldn't really be together on mass and and so in the case of the once for example um I, that was one of the ones I, I had on my list it's like i i don't i, I want jerry to sing last blue and uh, they were gracious enough to say yes right away and then they came up with this incredible orchestral arrangement with horns, and it's just so different from the original. Yet, you know, it has it has Jerry singing, so that's all you need right there. And uh, it was just, but you're right; it was a very, very um, complicated, technical and personal thing to pull off. Because, of course, you have 20 different acts who want to do 20 different things, which is exactly what you want, and you have to accommodate all that. But you also have 20 different acts. Have twenty different groups of people in them, right? So you got you got you, you got to allow for all those, uh, you know, sensibilities and, and, and sensitivities and all that stuff. And it was uh, it was a mountain of, of of work that myself and Corey and everybody were delighted to do. And some of these contemporaries are involved. You know, Glenn Simmons does picture of Dorian Gray. What do some of these other contemporaries think? Because even you go back to Sonny's Dream, first performed by the wonderful Grand Band. So people like Sandy Moores and Boomer and some of those who were a big part of his life, Kins, for instance, Paul. Kinsman, what are they thinking and saying? Oh, well, one of the great joys of of the process was for, I think, three days or four days, we actually set up the better part of the grand band in in the little studio that we made up. So Boomer played drums. Sandy played guitar, Glenn was playing guitar, we had Kins playing uh, uh, keys, and it was just like, it was like, my God, we basically have Ron's grand band here. And so they're the backing band on several tracks, including Barry Canning's, Corey Tetford's, Glenn Simmons, and like, it was such a joy to be, me and Corey had like a pinch me moment, like, like, like we're pressing record basically for the grand band. I mean, which is absolutely brilliant. And right in the middle of the record, I think it was uh, track eight or nine, how important is it to have Joel? Because, you know, Joel's relationship with Ron, you know, one of the artist quotes from him in the impressive media package that you sent along is, you know, Ron was one of the great loves of his life. He misses him every day. I mean, the relationship there, not only familial, but on the personal level, the professional level, is undeniable. How important was it to have Joel? I wanted to have Joel really badly just because I'm a big fan of his you know, artistry. And uh, I love, um, and, you know, he also is one of the guys that has co-writes on this record, of course, because he wrote Dark, he co-wrote Dark River with Ron. Oh. And that Amelia and Dwayne do, which is just stupid, spectacular. And uh, I just really wanted to have Joel on it because of, you know, as you say, there's a family connection, there's a, and there's a, you know, a bloodline connection. And, and also because I, I just love the sort of, the, the fact that Ron's music stretched across um, artistic 
you know, categories, right? Because Ron worked a lot in television and he wrote a lot of songs for films and he wrote a lot of songs and he, he acted himself. And when I, I wanted to have people like from the various, you know, artistic communities who, who could like someone, and Joel is such a, an incredible performer that I, I had him do a, like a, a little mini movie song like Last Chance Avenue, I thought would be awesome. Uh, it's kind of, you know, even the title of that song is pretty Joel Thomas Hines. <laughs> It's fantastic. It is, really is. His first professional credit was as a production assistant on Standing in Line in the Rain. So to come to his <laughs> most recent is this record is just, you know, coming full circle in a quite beautiful way. Yeah. So it's brilliant stuff on that front. Uh, Alan, what else would you like to sell people? Because I am not going to let this conversation go without mentioning the fact that the Ford, which is actually very eloquent, well, I shouldn't say that, is very eloquent, brought forward by Rick Mercer. And I'm going to yeah. mention every single performer before we go away, but give us your wet your whistle as to why to get it and what do you think it means because if we don't do things like this the man of a thousand songs will be a statue on george street when he his music deserves to be played over and over again yeah i mean he's our larry cohen he's our bob dylan and the cat you know that catalog of songs will live on long past me and you you know and so it should and we you know he left us with this tremendous asset with this tremendous uh, contribution of music that not a lot of people have heard, unfortunately, you know, and so a lot of people, uh, you know, who are big Ron fans should grab this record because it's a celebration of the songs you always loved, you know, sung by people who are just as passionate about it as you are. And for the rest of the country, I've been telling people like, uh, you know, get ready to discover uh, you know, one of the greatest uh, artists that lived in this country ever that you probably have never heard of. And let's give a couple of your uh, closer buddies a good shout out here. Uh, the Can, Barry Canning, he's on it, and his voice is undeniable to bring forward. Then you got different genres like Shani Ganak is on this record, yeah. and Yvette Lorraine, Rom Raggett. So it's just an eclectic mix where people bring their own style and interpretation to songs that are, you know, rightfully so, never going by the wayside and deserve to be sung again. Uh, last word to you before I give a shout out to every artist on the record. Super grateful to everybody for checking it out. You can get it, uh, uh, you know, down to Fred's if you want to get a hard copy of the record or a CD. Uh, and then you can listen to it or stream it anywhere you listen to music. Or if you want to order one, you can do it through my website, just alandoyle.ca. I'm going to keep you here while I give a shout-out to all hands. Tim Baker, Leaving on the Evening Tide. Amelia Kern and Dwayne Andrews, Dark River. Quote the Raven, Godspeed. Alan Doyle and the Dardanelles to the St. John's Waltz. The Once, Atlantic Blue, boy. Jody Richardson, The Criers Paradise. Check that one out for Mallory Johnson, River of No Return. Joel Thomas Hines with Last Chance Avenue. The Ennis Sisters, beautiful. Lonely Song, Matt, Matt Byrne, Matthew Byrne, they were 1962. Barry Canning, where do you get off? Good question, Barry. Corey Tedford, those shine like diamonds. Tedford, not only a great engineer, can shred a guitar and has a brilliant voice. If you've never heard him do Amazing Grace, check that out. Uh, Glenn Simmons, Pitcher of Dorian Gray. Yvette Lorraine, Where Does Love Go Wrong? Rum Raggedy in there with House. Shani Ganock, If I Left You Alone With My Heart. The Four ones no change me great song silver wolf band great inclusion with uh, dry mick davis my great buddy get back change and kelly loader wraps it up with sonny's dream congratulations alan thanks so much for having us on and i hope everybody loves the record see you around buddy have a great day you too ben bye-bye here you go alan doyle he's a beauty final break of the morning and the week don't go away and welcome back to the show let's go line number two brian you're on the air Good morning, Patty. Good morning. I, uh, I'd like to throw a brick and a bouquet this morning. 
I'd like to draw a bouquet to the people that work with Eastern Health. Uh, I've had some issues lately, and i got to say, uh, the service that I've gotten has been second to none. <laughs> but the system itself is broken. What you happened? Go into emergency, you go to emergency pity, and there are people out the hall that are not up to a horror. And you give them zero, 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 14 hours. And that, to me, is a broken system. You know? But I've had dealt with nurses, doctors, and, and other people, and it serves great, great care. Just want to make that point today. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, the popular consensus is by and large that the interaction with the healthcare professionals or their bedside manner is top quality. We've got real great pros in the system, but it's, it's hard to argue against your point that the system is frail. It might even be broken because it's certainly not working the way it's intended to work. And I think there's lots of reasons why. You know, I don't think the pandemic was helpful. The shortages we're seeing in some disciplines is certainly a problem. Lack of family doctors probably leads to some of those wait times people experience in emergency rooms. So there's a lot to trying to put it back to the way it's supposed to be. That's right. And Patty, you need to take the politics out of the healthcare system. 100%. You know? I mean, the politicians will tell you what you want to hear, but it's, they're not really addressing the, to me, addressing the root of the, the root of the problem. No. What do you consider to be the root of the problem? Uh, well, maybe the way money is spent, you know, just could be a better way to spend the funds. Fair enough. I mean, because money's not the be-all and end-all. If it was, we'd be fine. Because we spend almost $4 billion on health care in a province of about 520,000 people. There's something to that. Yeah, but are we getting value for the money? That's the question. Great. Anyway, I want to make that point this morning. How are you doing? <laughs> are you at home? Oh, at home. Yes, and I'm getting, I had the paramedics come to my place giving me IV antibiotics and the community health care nurses and all that, you know. So I'm doing better, yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear it, and I'm glad you're getting the treatment you need. And, you know, once people get in the system... They're doing okay. It's the yeah. aggravating weight and the, on the list that patient connect for a family doctor and up and down the line. So uh, I'm glad to know you're doing okay, Brian, and hopefully there's a full recovery in the near offing for you, and I appreciate your time. Now that you mentioned paramedics, I want to say to the province of paramedics, we haven't forgot about you. Sometimes we talk about every discipline and sometimes forget about paramedics when it might be me or you or Dave Williams might need a paramedic at some point in the near future. So we're still trying to get answers on the amalgamation of all those 60 contracts under one authority, which we guess will be the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services. So we have not forgot about you, paramedics. We're trying to get answers for you all the time. Thank you for your input. I appreciate your time, Brian. Be well. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Bye bye. All right, thank you. Uh, okay, before we run out of time on this beautiful looking Friday, let's go to line number three. Roger on the air. 
Hey, Patty, how are you doing today? Not bad at all. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Uh, I was talking the other day, the wife and I and the daughter and the granddaughter were heading down to St. John's uh, for the granddaughter to go visit in the Janeway and that. Oh, yes. uh, I thought, yes. Well, everything, uh, I had a good report yesterday for her, and we're quite pleased with it. Now we have an action, a plan on what needs to be done, and uh, we can proceed from there. So, uh... They don't have to come back now until the end of May. So everything so went okay? It went excellent in that. Right. So uh, for the short little uh, two years that Ellie May has been with us, uh, she was born January 1st. She was actually the first baby born two years ago on New Year's. Eh? Oh, is that right? Yes. So, uh, But she's had a rough go. She's been in and out of hospital I don't know how many times in the last year uh, fighting pneumonia, but she's, she has asthma. And now there's a game plan that we can go ahead and uh, uh, treat it the way that needs to be treated in that. So we're quite happy in that. So I'm pleased to hear that. As long as you're yeah. on the right track, that gives you some encouragement and some comfort. Yes. yes. Anyways, uh, I'd like to thank you and that, uh, Patty, for uh, your thoughts and your prayers and that. And uh, uh, just have a wonderful day, I guess. I appreciate that, Rod. It looks like a beautiful day out there. I'm looking forward to getting out in it. I've got a friend's birthday party a little later on, which I'm looking forward to. So hopefully a nice, relaxing weekend on tap for me and you and all hands tuned into the show. Right. Thank you very much, and you have a good day. You too, Rod. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, there you go. One comment Brian made is, you know, to take the politics out of healthcare. <laughs> I mean, for sure, right? I don't think anyone cares if there's a good idea that proves to be manageable and workable and successful, and it came from an independent member, an NDP, or a liberal or a Tory. We're at that point now where you can make your bones, politically speaking, on just about anything else. You know, I think you could probably associate the same thoughts about getting through what we're dealing with with housing. It's worth reminding ourselves that as much as there are big issues facing the people of the province, and they're undeniable, maybe I'm just cockeyed optimist, maybe I do this to myself for my own self-preservation, but there's still good things happening. And sometimes that feels like a silly thing to say when there are problems. But at the exact same time, there are ways to, you know, look at different areas where there's growth opportunities and maybe some economic up to, uh, uptick that might come to a region near where you live this morning. So, you know, while the stresses are real, and I feel them, and while there are so many tumultuous issues provincially, federally or nationally and yes of course internationally maybe just maybe there's a time where we can find a moment not to be too cheesy or corny but find a moment to just take a deep breath just take a deep breath and maybe sometimes the outcome for just a little dollop of kindness to someone else might give you that little brief reprieve that we all so desperately need so let's keep that in mind how about that for corn, Dave? Let's go to Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Talk about whatever you want to talk about. Sug- uh, suggest guests and questions. You know the deal. Uh, email address is openline.vocm.com. And yes, we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.